0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, November the 29th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air 2735211, 273 or elsewhere. It's toll free long distance 1. 1- 888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I was away yesterday. Big thanks to Tim Powers for sitting in for me. But just to circle back to the weekend a little bit. So thank you very much to everyone who tuned in, made a request, and made a donation to Dollar carol this year. We had a record amount of money raised, over $28,000. That's fantastic. Of course, all the money in support of the Community Food Sharing Association and the 56 food banks that they help stock the shelves of. Particular thank you to Clarence Signard. He's a Newfoundlander living in the Callawit. He does big fundraising effort every year for Diala Carroll. So this year, between individual cash donations and some companies, including KRT, they contributed sixteen thousand two hundred dollars. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much to all involved. So I came in on Sunday to put an hour in on Diala Carroll at one o'clock. Myself, Linda Swain. At the same time, I'm trying everything I can possibly do to not see what the soccer score was. That's virtually impossible task to, to be able to avoid that type of information. I managed to do it just to get home to click on the PVR to watch Canada play Croatia. The excitement was coursing through my veins after their performance against Belgium, of course. 68 seconds in, Alfonso Davies scores the first ever Canadian goal at the FIFA World Cup. Then we get dismantled four to one. I'm not even sure what everyone expected. I'm not even sure what I expected. But Croatia, one of the top sides in the world, and they looked it. And we looked inexperienced, although you know, pretty good showing. I guess for the first two games. Play Morocco on Thursday, just very quickly on that. If I knew you want to talk about that. Let's let's do exactly that. James Duffy, who uh, chairs the panel on TSN for the World Cup coverage, you know, everyone was so excited. I suppose that he said Alfonso Davies' goal is the. The brightest moment, the biggest moment in Canadian soccer history. Now he quickly backtracked a little while later because also sitting on the panel was a lady named Janine Becky. She's an Olympic gold medalist in soccer. I would suggest the Olympic gold medal is a bigger deal than scoring one lone goal in a 4-1 loss at the World Cup. But anyway, I mean people just came unhinged right away at Duffy, but he backtracked it. Anyway, speaking of the food drives, congratulations to the crowd at Conception Bay South at the Fire Hall. They've had their annual Stuff the Truck event and had a great go at it this year, supporting food banks in CBS and Paradise. Uh, Peter Wells, chairman of the Food Bank, he says, when he started years ago, we'd do 100 to 150 this Christmas hampers. Now we'll go over 500, and they'll have over 500 clients by the end of 2023. So the food conversation continues on the old open line. So Canada out at the World Cup, knocked out. But this is simply amazing. This is the heyday of Canadian tennis. Canada won the Davis Cup. I mean, the Davis Cup is pretty much the world championships of tennis. So we actually got bounced out, lost 4-0 to to the Netherlands early on in the season. But when Russia got dismissed from the tournament, for the obvious reasons, we were the highest ranked country on the outside looking in. So we got back in. We go on to beat Germany in the quarters, Italy in the semis, and beat Australia on Sunday to clinch the title. The Davis Cup has been around since 1900. Canada first participated in 1913. So let's see if I can remember the guys on the team Felix Oje Yellyassim, Dennis Shapovalov, uh, Vasik Pospisil, then two young fellas, Alexis Galarno and Gabriel Diallo. Canada wins the Davis Cup. Unbelievable. And just a reminder the president of Tennis Canada is Jennifer Bishop from St. John's. She came after uh, Derek Rowe, also a Newfoundlander Labradorian, back to back presidents at Tennis Canada. From the province. Pretty cool. And I did see a story where they've moved the date of the Tele 10 to July or pardon me, June 25th next year. The winner on the women's side this past Ten was Kate Baisley, of course. She is unbelievable. Kate went on to finish fourth at the cross country nationals t- recently and now automatically gonna run for Canada in the worlds. So I think I think she even exceeded her own expectations, but congratulations to Kate Baisley. That's yeah, unbelievable. Playing for Canada, running for Canada, speaking of Canada, I'm sticking with it. So there's six fellas from this province that are playing for Team Canada at the World Men's Softball Championship down in Auckland, New Zealand. One of them, the most recent winner of the Men's Softball Player of the Year, Sean Cleary. So he took to the bump, took to the mound to pitch against Australia. We won 6-0. It was a two-hitter by Cleary. He had 11 strikeouts in the effort. That brings Canada to 4-0 on the big stage at the World's okay that's enough sports isn't it very quickly this one jumped off the page at me this morning so just think how far we've come in the world of video games right all the way to virtual reality and the first person shooter games and the graphics are unbelievable pong everyone remembers pong it was unveiled by a fellow named nolan bushnell he's the founder of atari he put this arcade game in sunnyvale a little california tavern It became the first commercially successful video game and, of course, launched Atari as the first major video game company. That was back in 1972. All right, good morning to the folks out in Trapassi. We've spoken to people in Trapassi about a variety of issues over the years, but this one is about the fact that their breakwater is now completely demolished and has been for a while. They've got a contractor in line to go ahead and replace it and to do whatever needs to be done to make it uh, able to withstand the severity of the storms that we're seeing. So they've got a massive problem here. Not only is the town's breakwater gone, the entire stretch of road, there's an entire stretch of road that connects the community, one end of the community to another, also gone. So we know coastal communities communities are going to have to, you know, be cognizant of what we've seen here, whether it be out in Puerto Basque or, yes, in Trapassi, another place on the southern shore. But good morning to the folks out in Trapasi, If you'd like to join us, tell us about what you see and how desperate it is. And that includes Mayor Pennell and all the way down through the residents of the community. And good news, if you've been to Admiral's Beach in the last two decades, you would have seen the old fish plant. It's been closed for a couple of decades, I think, and it has just been there falling apart. You know, it was an unbelievable eyesore. Finally, it's been cleaned up, and finally the town can move on to some sort of tourism plan. Admiral's Beach, beautiful little community in St. Mary's Bay, and that fish plant was just there rotting away forever. My question would be, where's the corporate responsibility to clean up after yourself? You know, so the owner abandoned the plant when the cod moratorium was brought in. Understood. But just leaving it there for the vandals and for nature to take its course and for, yes, for it to be a blight on the community. You can see it from just about everywhere in Admiral's Beach. But it's gone, so that's good news for those folks. Sticking with. I read a story this morning, and this is about Provincial Ferry Service, the Intra-Provincial Ferry Service. So, the uh, the MV Challenge 1, which is owned by Pulitzer Shipping Limited, the province has them contracted to operate the ferry between Rose Blanche and La Poil. It's down to one engine, and apparently it's been that way since April. We know the winter waters are going to become a little bit more treacherous to navigate. It's a 90-minute trip, so no doubt it can be very rough out there sometimes. So, what does the one engine mean for the ability to maneuver properly? And apparently, the one engine has actually gone out a couple of times on the run, they were able to restart it a few minutes later, but what happens when and if it doesn't restart? That could be a potential problem. Now, apparently, the, the department here provincially says that Transport Canada regulations have been met. They've received all the necessary required approvals for the MV Challenge 1, but one engine on that boat. So, Ray Vauthier is the fellow who's a, the uh, chair of the Transportation Committee, transportation committee in Lapoil. And, you know, the community's got about 60 residents. And he says many of them have voiced concerns they don't feel safe, and I don't blame them. Obviously, the person who did the interview for this story went on, he must have went on, or he or she went on to ask Mr. Vautier about resettlement. It's an ugly word in many communities. We do know that some communities are entertaining that conversation. The threshold for people voting in favor of resettlement has been reduced or lowered from 90% to 75%. Mr. Voce says no such vote is in the offing in the near future in his community. So I assume that was a question posed to him because that's one of the quotes that came back. And for information purposes, it costs the province about $1.4 million per year to operate that particular ferry. And the resettlement conversation, like if it's happening in your community, you know, you don't know where the responsibility lies at the Department of Municipal Affairs because not only do residents have to vote in it to exceed 75%, but then you have to meet a savings threshold by, by the province before any relocation monies go out the door. It's the divisive, I would imagine, around kitchen tables, certainly amongst neighbors. And I know it can be a really ugly, unacceptable word in many households, but the future of some smaller communities, not because I say so, but because the numbers are clear, is a conversation that you would imagine is happening and will happen even more in the future as we see what goes on. All right, so I want to get this one out there because this is important. For those of you heating your home with oil, there is a home heating supplement program for furnace and stove oil users. The deadline for the application is tomorrow. So here's some of the eligibility issues. Eligible households will receive a maximum supplement of $500 where the adjusted family income for 2021 is $100,000 or less. A partial supplement is available to households with adjusted family incomes for 2021 of more than $100,000 but less than or equal to $150,000. The minimum supplement is $200. So if you are eligible, the application deadline is tomorrow, November 30th, so make sure you take advantage of that if you are indeed one of the homes eligible. And the stories are brand I mean, Okay. So the old $500 checks. I mean, I don't know how many emails and notes and conversations we've had about it. And fair enough, we can talk about whatever you'd like. So this was some of the cost of living supports. And you know all the eligibility issues. Some 100,000 of these checks have been administered and sent out in the mail. We know that They say some 392,000 eligible Newfoundlanders and Labradorians will receive up to $500, a sliding scale down to $250 for those earning $125 or less. Okay. Questions persist about why no direct deposit. It's an excellent question. On Prince Edward Island, they have a similar program in place, and they are using direct deposit information given to them by CRA. Now, we know what's going on in the check form here. If indeed someone belonged to you, has passed away since they filed their taxes, you're probably going to get that check. So if you are the executor or the administrator of the estate, you can simply deposit that into the estate. If you have some concerns and you're nervous about what to do, you just have to call the tax administration division at the Department of Finance. So it's happening, and it's happening a lot. I've got 20 people who have told me, because obviously between April or March and now, inevitably some people will pass away. So that's happening out there and if you want to take it on we can do it. The other concern that's being shared and I don't know why federal government checks are different than provincial government checks, the banks are obliged by law to cash your federal check, but they can put a 4 to 5 day business pardon me, the 4 to 5 business day hold on that check. So if you really need the cash and you know it's coming but you can't really put up with the hold, the only thing I can say to you is sign it over to somebody else who can forward you the money and they'll just put it in their own bank account. But I'm hearing a lot of stories about that as well. All right, how are we doing on the phone there, David? Here's the shortages versus the overcapacity concerns. Okay, this one here, you know, we've talked about it, but the numbers are staggering. And this is the shortage of radiation therapists in the province. And, of course, as a result, One of the four suites at the H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Center has been closed. According to the Canadian Association of Medical Radiation Technologists, 8 of 29 positions, more than 27% are vacant in this province. The national averages are between 10 and 14%. So if it's just about parity regarding pay, that's one thing because If this is jeopardizing the future of cancer care in the province, and if it does indeed boil down to pay, and they're striving to be on par with the rest of Atlantic Canada, we can't afford to see anyone else go. 27% vacancy here, national average in and around 10 to 14%. At the exact same time, we're talking about expanding cancer care, both in St. John's and in Cornerbrook. So they were talking about a new radiation treatment suite in 2023. Can't do that if you don't have the staff. They were also talking about the fact that there has been acute care, cancer care, promised for the Corner Brook Hospital. How's that going to happen if we don't even have all four open and operating suites in St. John's at the Health Sciences Center or the H. Bliss Murphy Cancer Care Center? So that shortage issue is very real. Can't afford to see yet one more of those radiation therapists leave. Apparently seven have left already this year. And then you talk about shortages to overcapacity. Ever since we talked to Michelle Green from the Iris Kirby House, I can't get it out of my mind. It is extraordinary to know just how many women and their children are fleeing dangerous situations and looking for emergency shelter. For context, and I believe Michelle was on with Tim yesterday because I spoke with her last week. Since April, they've taken in 108 people at the Transition House in St. John's, 81 at their operations in Carbon Air. They've turned away 267 others. It's extremely scary. The minister responsible is actually John Abbott. He's the minister responsible for housing, not Pam Parsons, who you would think that that's probably a better spot inside her portfolio. But what can we do about this? I mean, it's a societal responsibility to be honest about these conversations. It's absolutely a government responsibility to ensure that women and their children and or men who are fleeing dangerous situations, have somewhere to turn. Not everyone has a trusted friend or family member that can take them in. So they can turn for some short term relief at a hotel room or something for instance. But also a repeated message coming from Michelle Green is if you are a woman and mother and hear these stories don't say well I can't turn to them because there's no help available. There are some supports. Maybe not a roof over your head but it's a start. So don't Stay in a dangerous situation because you hear these numbers. And that's coming directly from the executive director at Iris Kirby House, uh, Miss Green. So I've been thinking about that story ever since we spoke to her. And at the same time, the province is expecting its fourth charter of Ukrainians, whether they be evacuees or refugees, however you want to talk about it. The fourth charter with some 170 Ukrainians on it will arrive next week. That brings the number of newcomers to this province fleeing the war to 1,300. 520 have uh, come on these charters, the rest on their own. Look, you hear me and you know my position on immigration. I think it's important. The death rate doubles the birth rate in this province. But it doesn't make anybody a bad person to ask about things like, where do we put women and their children who are running, maybe for their very lives? It doesn't make you a bad person to ask about Where are the Ukrainian evacuees? And I know they're fleeing war. And I welcome them. But where are they going to live? How are they going to deal with requirements for health care? Where are they going to work? Minister responsible Jerry Burns says two-thirds of the Ukrainian arrivals have gotten a job. Very few, he says, are in temporary housing. So, you know, satisfying both at the same time, it's going to be a tricky piece of business. And we do have a housing crunch. So, again, you can be pro-immigration, and understand the challenges. And at the same time, Minister Responsible Jerry Byrne has asked the federal government to lift the cap on the numbers of people we can uh, nominate for permanent residency. Okay, so welcome if you're new to the province. And hopefully, between the Association of New Canadians, the federal government, and the provincial government, a job can be found, a home can be found, access to health care can be achieved. So we can take that on if you'd like. And this one here, here we go. So we just talked about uh, a fourth charter of Ukrainians coming to the province. This story, bit of a head-scratcher. And I know we're supposed to be mad at everything, when in fact sometimes we might get mad at things that maybe don't meet the threshold of anger. This is about a private flight. <laughs> so some three councillors from the town of Steenville and the town manager, they left via Air Canada for Hamburg, Germany to look at what green hydrogen might look like. The return flight not so cramped. They flew on a Bombardier bd 700 1A10 ultra-long range private jet owned by John Risley. So politicians, I mean optics will always play a role. Of course it does. And politicians should not be accepting gifts. But the accepting of a gift is a real problem if it comes with some benefit to the counselor or the politician of any level. My question here would be, other than a swanky flight home, what does anyone get? The town signed an MOU, they're already all in. They want this to happen. They have no authority to green light a project or release it from an environmental assessment. They have no money to inject into the project itself. So I get it. People will say, boy, you know what? Must be nice. And it is nice to fly on a private jet. Not that I know anything about it. But it, the story's written as if it's supposed to be some sort of earth-shattering revelation. Is it? I mean, What do they get out of it other than a cozy flight home? as opposed to sitting in steerage in the back of an AC jet. Anyway, that story's out there if you want to take it on. And, yes, some people will be quite cross with it, but so be it. And try to leave on a positive-ish note before we get to the break. Uh, Congratulations and thank you to Michelle Payne at Fox's General Store in Cornerbrook. She has set up a donation rack in her shop. You can come in and get a winter coat or a pair of mittens for free. So she's already quite busy. This effort has been inspired by her grandson. So bravo to that young fellow. So people are donating mittens and hats and snow pants and hand-knit slippers, winter coats, snow suits, jackets, winter boots. Someone even brought in a pair of skates. So you can go to her store and take something to keep you warm over the winter. So thank you very much, Michelle Payne. But it also comes with acknowledging just how many people are in need for some of the, uh, the very fundamentals. We're trying to weather the winter here in the province, but thank you, Michelle, for doing that. Yeah, the, store, the shop's right outside a bus stop, too. It's so seven days a week. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout, just like you're going to do during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin online number three. Morning, Colin. You're on the air.
2: Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Very well. Thanks. How about you? Doing good, thanks. I want to talk about a... The Toronto Police Service and a uh, media gathering that they had late last week related to uh, an arrest of a man in Toronto. Uh, This this is a double homicide case. This George Sutherland? Yes. Okay. Um, Or Joseph
1: George Sutherland, I think. Yeah.
2: Yep. Right. Two two women died in 1983. One in August one in December, and now Mr. Sutherland has been arrested and charged with murder in relation to those two homicides? Yeah,
1: Susan Tyson, Aaron Gilmore, <clears throat> sexually assaulted and stabbed to death.
2: Allegedly. Well, al- allegedly. That's what the charges B- he's by facing. By him. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the I, I watched uh, this news conference and some uh, media stories related to this. And, uh, you know, the police seem to have this case uh, as as a slam dunk. That they're saying that they had this man's DNA. Uh, He's linked to two killings. They're pretty sure that this is going to hold up in court. I don't know what evidence they have against him, if any. I don't know anything about the integrity of this alleged DNA sample that they have. How is it stored? Was it stored properly? Is it contaminated? Has it degraded over time? The methodology used in testing this? You know, I think for the police to hold a a news conference, come out and say a lot of personal information about this man, and he hasn't even had his day in court yet, much less a trial or a preliminary hearing, I think that potentially prejudices uh, the case against him.
1: I don't know what any evidence is, uh, is involved here, but I assume some of it has been presented to a court to get a warrant for his arrest, so I, I really don't know what the outcome may be. But, of course, law enforcement will always talk in that excited slam-dunk tone when they have what they're calling DNA evidence. And, of course, this is the world of investigative genetic genealogy. And the world of the, what are they calling it, ancestry.ca, or what's the other one, uh, 23andMe, I think it is, People are seeing their uh, their DNA being compiled on these databases. You should have to give consent for that, number one. But of course, now they're able to track through your family tree for DNA familial relations, and then I guess it results in the arrest and the charges being brought for two cases or two uh, two counts of first degree murder for Joseph George Sutherland. I don't know where it lands, Colin, but it's pretty fascinating stuff. A nineteen eighty three cold case.
2: Yeah, well, it is. It is, and 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 this uh, genealogy tracking through DNA. It, it could be not only your brother or your sister, it could be your great-great-nephew or something, somebody who is three or four or five degrees of separation away from you. And this this can all be tracked down and eventually uh, lead to you, and you could be charged, uh, you know, in this case for a murder. But uh, my my point is, since there is a charge that has been laid against someone now, and this man's photo and his full name and where he lives and all this sort of stuff has been put out there in the media, you know, for media consumption, and, and particulars of this case that the, that the police had alleged evidence against him, I think it's incumbent upon the police and the Crown and the Department of Justice uh, specifically, to, to, since there is a charge laid now, and this matter is before the court, to say nothing until the matter actually gets inside a courtroom in front of a judge, be that a preliminary hearing or, or a trial court. You know?
1: But why would this be any different than any other case where they're speaking to DNA evidence? Simply because of the amount of time and the chain of custody and that type of yeah, stuff I'll, that you mentioned? Is that your concern?
3: Yeah, I'll,
2: I'll, all these issues you know, had to be brought out into court. And challenge and things like that, but I think since since the charge is laid, whether it's a murder charge or a drug charge or anything else, I, I think that there's the, the, it's incumbent upon the police and and the crown attorneys who are going to be prosecuting that case, since the matter is before the court and someone is now charged, to to say nothing pre-trial in relation to that matter and have the have the evidence, if there is any evidence, and any other particulars related to that case, unfold in the court and have the press there to report on it. subject to, uh, you know, publication bans for names of alleged victims and things like that. But, you know, just to have somebody charged and have the police hold hold a media news conference and put this man's name out there and his face and where he lives and and comment on, you you know, his DNA is linked to two killings and we're pretty sure this is going to hold up in court. That's for a judge to decide, not the police.
1: Well, I guess that's ultimately how it will be decided, right?
2: right maybe or maybe not you know it's up to the crown to constantly re- review the case file on this matter the crime the crown may not even end up prosecuting that case they could drop the charge they could stay the proceedings i don't know what they're going to do but the police have the power of the microphone they have the power to influence public opinion and potentially taint a jury pool this man's entitled to a fair trial and he is presumed innocent right if, uh, uh,
1: yes, of course. So, didn't this type of gene- uh, pardon me genetic genealogy also lead to the arrest and conviction of the person who killed that 9-year-old girl? I can't remember her first name. I think it was Jessup. Uh, yeah, that's was a deceased. 1984 case. Didn't that he already make its way through the courts?
2: No, he was deceased. He couldn't be prosecuted. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But the, police, but the police did name him as, as the killer, notwithstanding the fact he was deceased. And he said if he had been alive, they would have, proc- they would have led a murder charge against him. You know, But this is a person who is alive, and the police tracked this person down, and he is charged now. And since this matter is a, a live matter before court, I think there should be nothing said about this case until it gets into court. And then had the media report on it, as I said, subject to publication bans for alleged victims' names and things like that. But uh, the media would be free to report on it. But uh, it's potentially going to take the jury pool.
1: I would imagine this type of DNA database stuff is the be-all and end-all. Well, it's certainly the primary focus, I would imagine, of investigators who are dealing with cold cases. Uh, If I remember the news story correctly, there's something like 700 cold cases that are still active in Toronto alone, which is pretty amazing stuff. Uh, Colin, appreciate the time as usual. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye now. Yeah, have you done that, uh, Dave, submitted a DNA sample for that family tree stuff? I haven't either. I don't think it really interests me. Maybe afraid to see what I find out. <laughs> but, you know, some people really do. I know there's a cousin of mine who does a lot of work at the archives. I don't know if they've gone down the DNA road, but go, you know, just do the paper chase of trying to find out who, who knit you and where they're all from. But anyway, DNA technology, pretty amazing stuff. But I, I know a lot of people who have already done it and come up with some interesting results, too. There's this one fella I know who they were pretty cocksure that they were Italians uh, in their heritage, simply because of his surname, but it turns out the vast majority of the background are Irish. (laughs) So... Both begin with an I. That's as close as it gets. Let's take a break. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away.
0: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to
1: line number five. Say good morning to the Communication and Training Coordinator with the NL Housing and Homelessness Network. That's Jeff Hilliard. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Hey,
4: good morning, Patty. How are you doing?
1: Great today. How are you doing?
4: Oh, pretty good, pretty good.
1: Well, needless to say, given the title and the organization you work for, you folks must be awful busy.
4: Oh, it's, uh, it's non-stop really here at the Network, so
5: absolutely.
1: Before we, I think you want to talk about the Network Cafe in particular, but just give us an idea of some of the things you do. Because like, for instance, off the top of the show, I'm talking about emergency shelter and the overcapacity at Iris Kirby House and whatnot. What sort of services uh, and offerings do you guys have?
4: So here at the network, our focus is actually on rural and remote housing and homelessness. Okay. Um, We have, there's 10 different uh, community advisory boards, and the community advisory boards are all across the province. There's two in Labrador and then all in different remote areas of the province and basically the advisory boards uh, make up the network and each advisory board is a volunteer board they all work um to address housing and homelessness in their regions uh some boards or all the boards have a housing support worker that's like an employee that's attached to them uh, some of them have their own emergency shelters. Some are in the process of trying to, you know, get funding or whatnot to build emergency shelters and, and you know, uh, tackle the needs in their own remote and rural areas. And here at the network, uh, we're a very small organization. There's only three staff here on the network side, but we try to support them with training, with uh, you know, knowledge sharing, uh, getting information to them about funding opportunities, and getting them connected with the people that can help them.
1: Terrific, you know, so obviously busy is an understatement, and I just was curious, and I think I knew most of that, but for the listeners, for a bit of context, terrific. Okay, so Jeff, let's talk about what the Network Cafe is.
4: Right, so here at the Network we have our offices, but we also have a social enterprise attached next door uh, called the uh, Network Cafe, so it's a small uh, cafe that's meant to... Uh, help employ people that maybe um, you know have barriers to employment and that sort of thing. It's been closed for much of COVID-19, but we just opened last month. And uh, our, our lovely server Anna is a uh, newcomer from Ukraine, and she asked us about when once we opened if we might be able to do a special where she could um, you know lend some serv- lend some help in the kitchen and create some uh, a special menu. Uh, of uh, food from Ukraine. So this week we have a, a Ukraine special where we have uh, three different offerings. We have borscht, which is like a beet soup, um, pierogies, and um, zebra cake. So we're offering those this week here at, the, uh, here at the cafe.
1: What's a zebra cake?
4: So zebra cake is kind of like a vanilla chocolate cake. Um, it's definitely like a cake my mother uh, made growing up. Now I don't know if she knew it was a Ukraine-style uh, cake, but it was. Uh, uh, it's, it's basically a vanilla and white cake. Or vanilla and chocolate,
1: I'm sorry. Borscht is a really hearty uh, stew, or it's it's much like a stew, beets and carrots and onions and the like. I've had it many times. When we lived out west, a bunch of uh, Ukrainians actually lived close by where we lived ourselves. And uh, pampushki bread, that was something else.
4: Yes, we have that as well. Oh, you
1: do? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there you go. We're
4: serving that with the Borscht. So that's basically garlic bread. Essentially, yeah. it's a, We have it done in a small, almost like a small muffin, kind of like a, almost like you'd see sometimes cornbread muffins, but it's not cornbread. It's, a, it's like you said, a, kind of like a garlicky taste, yes.
1: Terrific. Listen, uh, anything else you want to – actually, let me pose the question one more time a little bit more directly. For folks, for instance, who are being turned away at places like Iris Kirby House, I mean, when they look for, you know, homelessness networks and whether it be in homelessness in St. John's and they ran out of space at the emergency shelter, I mean, are they calling you guys?
4: We do get some calls here just based on our name people people will sometimes call us just they see our name and they're, they're looking for help, and we'll definitely do what we can to point them to a frontline organization. Uh, if they're here in St. John's, you know, we'll try to point them in a few different directions. There's the uh, emergency housing line the Newfoundland-Labrador Housing has, which is always like if somebody is in an emergency situation, that's definitely the first number that they should call. Um, and then after that, there's a few different frontline organizations here in the city. And then if they're calling from outside the overpass, I'll find out where they're calling from, and I'll try to connect them with the housing support worker that is closest to them. And even if they're like in a situation, let's just say they're in Twillingate, but the closest housing support worker might be in Gander or Grand Falls, I'll still call that housing support worker because they'll usually know who to call in Twillingate kind of thing. So, yeah, we do do get those kinds of calls.
1: Jeff, appreciate the time. and Keep up the good work.
4: No worries. Just one last thing to get out there for the cafe. If anybody's interested, we're open Monday to Friday, 8 to 3. And our address is on uh, our street address is 77 Charter Drive in Pleasantville, but our entrance is on East Drive.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. All the best, Jeff. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's Jeff Hilliard yeah. at the NL Housing and Homelessness Network. Uh, let's go to two. Caller, you're on the air.
6: Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Um, I'm calling in about the um, women's shelters and regarding women and children. And uh, as we know in Newfoundland, um, women and children have the highest uh, rate of domestic violence. Um um it concerns me because I was one of those women in a shelter three times. And when I went to authorities, police, um social workers, uh the court system, I wasn't believed. Um no, I wasn't believed, I wasn't helped. I wasn't helped by social workers. I was ridiculed, made fun of. Um,
1: Did you get help at Irish Kirby, though? Is that what you said?
6: Oh, yes. At, at, the, at the shelters, um, i got to say, it was the safest place and very kind, compassionate, and considerate, and um, counseling and everything. But the breakdown comes when um, with the manipulation of the abuser. And um, social workers do not help women and children. Um, You're made fun of. Your, um, but now I believe
1: I'm not going to say that uh, your story isn't uh, right on the money or being told truthfully.
6: Patty, listen, Patty. Er, no, every know, time I second. call in, you you get there and you have doubt.
1: No, well, no, no. I don't know even what? know who you I are. Lived it. Okay, but I I'm what I'm going it. to say. What I'm going to say, because I know it to be a fact, is that not everyone who presents is ridiculed or taunted or made fun of by a social worker.
6: But you're not. Your children are not helped, Patty. Okay. You go through a court system and you have all kinds of evidence, but the sharing of the information, of the evidence, uh, between police, social workers, judges, they don't care about women or children. They do not care. This is why uh, you got such, probably one of the reasons now that you have such a increase uh, in women not being able to be helped or placed in the shelter is because um, over 15-20 years we've we've seen women and children like nothing has changed when it comes to domestic violence and it's very sad because you know what all of this leads to childhood trauma and children are being battled up through the years with this trauma, and so are the women, because they feel they've been let down by the system. This is why, because you got this domestic abuse going on, and it happens with men, too. I'm not going to deny that. It happens with men, but most prevalent, it happens with women and children. And I don't know if you've ever watched the Fifth Estate documentary where Andrea Goss um, done a segment with the W5, and Andrea speaks in that interview with W5 where the police, the judge, social workers knew that Quinn was at risk. Same thing, and nobody done nothing to protect her, that little girl. She'd still be alive today if supervision was put in place. If Andrea was believed and supervision was put in place where the man was abusive. And the same thing went for David and Kate Bagby. Shirley Turner was accused of murder. She was... She was in jail. She gave birth to Zachary. Um, David and Kate Bagby tried to get custody of Zachary, and they were turned on. They were good people, but they were turned on. And a lot of this is going on in through the court system, through the closed court system. Judges are handing over children because Child, Youth, and Family Services uh don't care and they just placed children back in the abuse again this is the problem the justice department the laws there's people that have abducted children in newfoundland and labrador and gotten away with charges Been charged with by police and gotten away with charges
1: i'm not sure what to say to that because i don't know the specifics of any of those well, they have. okay fair enough um,
6: they have and and would, I know many. Like to... <clears throat> I know, Patty, I know I know children that are still missing today. A friend of mine's children still missing today, and that was that was back in 2006. and no social worker or no director is held accountable for nothing. And no family members know if those children are alive separated it was a twin if if they're alive if they were separated if if they're okay if they may need medical you know like medical uh their family for medical purposes their biological family i I've, i've dug into this for 20 years okay and and oh. and watched and, and documentaries on in Newfoundland, and nothing has changed. And, and you got children being bought up in a system that's that's traumatizing the children instead of helping them.
1: Which should never be the way. I don't think anybody would think that that's appropriate or acceptable. Uh, it's not acceptable. It, uh, it's not acceptable. That's right. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you for the call. I hope you're well. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come home, it's the Greener Home Grants. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Tom, you're on the air.
7: Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, I missed your preamble, so hopefully it's nothing redundant. Um, I just wonder yesterday uh, Paul Lane called in, and he, he um, was talking about the carbon tax and um, kind of musing out loud that, you know, people still have to go to work and, and so a lot of people are not, um, able to reduce their costs. You know, just, just the people I've been speaking to are making different choices. Uh, I was speaking to a lady who carpools from Bay Roberts, which they'd never done it before. And, um, I spoke to a contractor who has a small vehicle. He drives around now instead of his diesel pickup truck. And, um, I was talking to a homeowner who, who you has furnace and electric baseboard heaters in their home and they, um, and he turned off the furnace last April and he hasn't turned it on since and he turned off his auto filling and he's been he's been struggling through with the electric baseboard heaters and he's in the process now of looking at getting heat pump of some sort put in so you know it is it you know people are making different choices i just spoke to a business owner who has 3 ev vans and 2 electric cars so uh, and they love them and you know i, I know it's hard transition and and, it, and it's tough and the pr- people are really struggling with the cost of everything but, you know, there is there are people doing it, and, and people don't seem to be having a negative uh, response to making a little bit different choices and, and saving money. But also, I'm sure we're reducing our carbon footprint. Just that homeowner I spoke to uh, previously burned 5,000 liters of oil, which is uh, 30,000 pounds. So 15 tons that that homeowner was burning last year that he's just not going to burn this year. So, you know, that's a lot. It makes a big difference. For sure. Yeah. You know, um, I'm struck by uh, what went and what's been going on in Trapassi and um, and even more specifically, what happened in Fairland over the over the weekend. Listening to Mayor Costello in Fairland, he said last year they put 150 tons of armor stone to protect the area where the um, Avalon uh, Colony of Avalon Avalon dig is, and, and armor stone is rocks that are between three and five tons of just solid rock. So you can picture trying to move that. And uh, yes, Sunday morning, um, in one hour, the sea took them and just took them out to sea, just gone. And, uh, you know, and when you look at that and you think of what just happened to Puerto Basque and you just realize that, you know, you're going to just keep putting those rocks back there.
1: Well, I'm sorry, but what's the point you're making is that we're just repeating ourselves in the same outcomes?
7: Well no, i mean you know, I guess I'm transitioning now over to uh, you know a bit of a talk about you know climate change and its impact on on these coastal communities and but
1: regardless, uh, we're still going to have to have breakwaters that can withstand the storm surges that we see, no matter what anybody does to move to more insulation, which I think that's where people kind of miss the point here is before heat pumps and mini splits, you know windows and insulation and doors is the number one way to keep your house a little bit. Warmer and at less cost in the wintertime. Okay, and we're still going to have to put in breakwaters, what have you. So even if everyone made all the required social and individual decisions today, it's not going to change the water on the beans with the breakwater, is it?
7: Well, I think if you're going to put it there every year, then at some point you have to realize there may be parts of our communities that we have to um, maybe, uh, you know, in... in, um Certain situations, like when the fire chief in Fort McMurray drew a line through a subdivision, said we have to level that subdivision. We just have to write it off to save the city from the wildfires in Alberta. And so I think as difficult as it is to wrap our heads around, um, breakwaters cannot hold back the ocean. We, in CBS, they have to keep replacing it Um and i you know there are things we can do in certain areas where you can plant like natural grasses they're starting to do that trying out in the out in the ocean to try and slow down i don't know if that applies to newfoundland but i know in, in places where there's like earth there that the grasses can grow in that can slow it down but you know man cannot hold back the ocean and, and uh, you know, but I, I don't want to hold too much on it, but I do, do think we need to all sit around the council table and around the provincial emergency room table and say, well, maybe this area is not salvageable, but let's move our infrastructure. Let's move our roads. Let's get them away from the ocean because, you know, insanity is repeating the same mistakes over and over again, expecting a different uh, result. You know, just, I just want to throw that out there. So Okay. Yeah, so over to the Green Homes grant and the different things. So if, I've been going through this with a family member, trying to help them make some decisions. And um, I'm starting to see the, some of the challenges within the combination of the federal and provincial programs uh, when it comes to encouraging people to make different choices. And I do want to pick up on what you just said, 100%. Sealing your home and insulating it is the, should be where everybody starts because when you have a more better insulated home, I mean, you can insulate a home to the point that it's net zero, that you almost don't need any heat. And, and that would be a good objective for anybody building a home. Anybody who's building a new home should be building one of these ICF homes, which is basically a styrofoam home with concrete down through the middle. And, uh, you know, but, you know, wherever you can, insulation and ceiling, because obviously if you don't need to put heat into the building because you're not losing it, that's that's a win-win. But, you know, starting with the federal government program, it's a very long process. It, it is a little tangly and, um and you and you run into these challenges whereby um whereby it's it's almost like a, a, the department sits around and says let's do this and let's just do it. And so so one of the big restrictions that people are running into is if you get into a heat pump whether if it's a mini split heat pump they basically said that a mini split heat pump has to have a efficiency rating of 10. And then and then which is which is no problem. That's that's easily done. And then a multi-head unit for the province they say they say ten for the single ones, but for the province, they say nine point five because it gets more and more difficult and more and more expensive. There's less and less units as you want a higher efficiency rating, so therefore it gets much more expensive for the homeowner um so so for the province, they said nine point five the feds they said ten for the um central heat pumps, which are the the larger systems that sit outside, they're not the ones that are on you know you've got, you've got these big units outside, and they then you have duct through your house blowing air for those for the province, they say nine. For the feds, they say ten, so basically you get into the point where for these central units, there's only a small number of units and they're more expensive, significantly more expensive for the homeowner and and it makes it more and more difficult to do it so so from a fed the federal system right now needs to be modified to mirror the provincial, usually it's the other way around, but the province was adaptive and and they've you know they've they've done that, so that you know that's positive. The other thing I'm realizing as I listen to the combination of Newfoundland hydro and listening has been going through this process with these central units. Is the central units in most cases need to have an electric backup heater in case the outside unit fails. And a lot of people who who are putting these in might would have an oil furnace and they're replacing it. The challenge is that now you have to have a, a lot of electricity for this backup heat. So the the heat pump itself is not so bad, but you need to have maybe 10 kilowatts of so now now you have to upgrade your panel. But the other thing is we're we're getting people to put all these systems in. With this electric backup heat, or in the case of hot water radiation, um, just a straight electric furnace, which are not realizing any of the efficiencies of a heat pump in an electric furnace, you, and Newfoundland Hydro has to be able to supply all the power. And so, you know, going back to the early 2000s when um, we were looking at what we're going to do for electrification, how we're going to meet demand within the province, and And Newfoundland Hydro commissioned a study, and it basically said we're going to go around and we're going to right-size all commercial industrial applications, put more efficient lighting in, put more efficient motors and pumps in. And we're going to encourage people with the R2000, make their homes really efficient, get into heat pumps. And that was the direction they were going in. And then we know what happened. They said, no, no, we're going to actually increase our supply, and we're not going to worry about efficiency. And so, lo and behold, we built Muskrat Falls, and we're still dealing with that. And now... If Hydro is coming to us and saying, well, now we're electrifying, we have the exact same problem. So, so you know, we've got to increase our supply again, we've got to increase beta spare, we've got to uh, perhaps May- replace.
1: Well, we've got to maintain uh, ho- uh, Holyrood. So the, they came out and said $522 million for an eighth generating unit at beta spare. That's a billion dollars when you include ongoing operations at Holyrood. So." And to add to the fact that we've had a distinctly failed test of the uh, Labrador Island link last week, tripped them when they were trying to put 700 megawatts over the course of it, the test prior to that was much lower wattage, megawattage, and it seemed to work okay because we didn't lose our power. So the hydro-related matters, whether it be approach, policy, and I was going to say competence, I was, I was, I, I'll leave that word in there, is... Uh, pretty shaky at this point. I think Jennifer Williams has done some good stuff to turn it around a little bit at hydro, but, I mean, it's everyone's favorite whipping post at these, uh, this moment. Tom, last word to you before I get to the news.
7: Sure. Well, I just want to point out that back in 2012, Jim Fian said we should work on um, Elasticity. pricing. Right, we should look work on pricing. So, in other words, we don't need Holyrood most of the year. It's only 2% of our energy consumption for the whole year, but it's 15% during the coal months. If we can get Time of year billing that will, that will cause people to make different choices. And I also call on the province to consider letting people keep their oil furnaces as a backup instead of forcing them to put in electric resistance heating as a backup because they're only going to use it if it's needed. And that oil tank is going to sit there all year. It's not going to be a big deal. We're not going to burn it. It's only going to be there in case of emergency, in case of a failure of your unit. So I think there's some possibilities there to think outside the box and not make the same mistakes that we seem to continue to make in this province. Everyone, stay safe. Take care. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Tom. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.
1: Uh, we are going to get to the news on time, but appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Some varied topics coming up. We're talking about the loss or the looks like it's going to be the loss of the obstetrics unit out in Gander. Tim wants to talk about the pending winter parking ban, and then we're speaking about Trapassi, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away.
0: Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member of the House of Assembly. Elected in and serving the folks of Fairland, that's Loyola O'Driscoll. Good morning, Loyola. You're on the air.
8: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning?
1: Great today. Thanks.
8: How are you doing? Good, buddy. I just called this morning, Patty, to uh, discuss the uh, Trapassi uh, breakwater issue that's been happening up there this week again. And uh, a year ago in September past, They had a washout. Hurricane Larry washed out the breakwater down there. And come this September, they had another storm surge that uh, caused more damage to the storm. They were they did get awarded a tender, I'm going to say, to repair that uh, breakwater. And then there was more damage caused after the storm surge uh, a- after that. And, uh, you know, now we have another storm surge. Spoken about this a uh, good many times in the House, spoke to the minister, uh, did speak to the premier who did. Uh, make a call to uh, Mayor Pell, and so did uh, the minister at the time, right now, done the same thing, gave her a call. But as of now, they've had, you know, up until this point, they haven't been up there. So, you know, uh, I know they have people from the department up there, but they're looking, you know, they're looking to have something done sooner rather than later. It took a full year to get some reaction from Hurricane Larry to be able to put up a breakwater, and then there was more damage caused. And now there's more done again in regards to. You know, to the breakwater. So you know, they're at a time now that something should be done fairly quickly instead of just taking so long to get done, Teddy. That's that's the big issue right now. So how much then work? Surge,
1: how much work was done was after Larry before Earl hit? No. So nothing. Nothing no, changed.
8: The town had to go in and and plow through. Like I went up uh, in September this year past, and uh, it was only a couple of months ago. I went up, and I mean, they literally had loaders going through, just like they have a loader going through in the winter, plowing the rocks. Away from the the uh, way from the road, so they could get through and the road was totally destroyed, along with the water l- lines on the outside, so you know that, that, that and there's nothing happened, nothing as of yet.
1: yeah, I mean you know so people make the point that you know we 've got to build better in more protected areas, but of course, easy enough to say, but some of this is not just homes are in, this is road the road, so it 's pretty darn close i don 't know if part of the conversation has to include. Uh, rerouting a road in addition to a breakwater because a lot of Trapassi is pretty close to that high water mark in the first place. So when you add in storm surge and how deep that can make its way in over that road and in towards the community, I think both have to happen, don't they?
8: Uh, Well, for sure, Patty. I mean, the mayor, when I was up there uh, during the storm, the mayor had said that, you know, they looked at a point that they could – where, the, where it comes in, you say reroute the road. It's certainly over a period of time they could have done it, and the mayor had suggested that many years ago. But, you know, it had to change the direction where it's still bringing it further away from the coastline to more into the harbour itself. And it certainly could have been done, but they got a water line there, the pavement is...
1: Yeah, no, nothing's easy. Now. Yeah.
8: Yeah. Yeah. No, nothing, no, for sure. And, you know, they, and sometimes, you know, they make these suggestions and they just sometimes they go on their ears. and they're good suggestions. And I, when I went up there, first thing I thought, now, they went across this little bay here. this would make this a lot easier Now you know they got a water line that's out there, and you know for something to be done needs to be done fairly quickly. I mean, I was up there in September and again spoke to the minister and they were, you know they were going to get up there and meet with the mayor and and it never happened. you know they never saw other than the i'm sure engineers have been up there, but you know they're looking to see the minister, they asked him to go up. he did promise to go. And, you know, it hasn't been up there as of yet. I did, you know, I did make a suggestion that we go together and, and look at some of the spots along the coastline here that do need some work and a couple of little stops. But, you know, up to now, it hasn't. They're not proactive to it. They're reactive. And, you know, that's not acceptable right now. And these people could be cut off again. And, uh, you know, it's wintertime now. And, uh, and how many, you know who knows how many storm surges are going to happen, you know, from here on in for sure.
1: Yeah, well, time is always of the essence when we're trying to rebuild storm damage and especially like if anyone's ever been to Trapassi or in your mind's eye can picture just the close proximity of that stretch of road with the high water mark then of course this stuff is very very real for the folks in that area I appreciate the time this morning Loyola anything else quick
8: yeah, Patty, just to touch base to it, again, I spoke with the mayor and uh, Sunday morning I was out of town and I spoke to her. And also on Sunday morning I had a, a text from a gentleman in Calvert with had some washout and a uh, text from, uh, I spoke to a gentleman, the mayor in Renews as well. And they had a lot of storm damage. They were not storm damage, but, you know, a lot of rocks and kelp coming up on the roads. And, uh, you know, they're looking for some armor stone in some of these spots. And that would be preventive maintenance. And, you know, I I speak to the minister and say, like, we've got to get out and have a look at this stuff before what's going to happen, you know, with these storm surges. And especially in renews and Calvert area, they're going to wash out the road and cut off these communities if you don't get to look at it and get to these areas quickly.
1: Appreciate the time. Thanks for the call.
8: Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Patty.
1: My pleasure, Loyola. Take care.
8: Okay. That's
1: Loyola O'Driscoll, o- he's the member for Fairland. Let's go line three, Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. how are you? Uh, very well, thanks, how about you?
9: I- I'm wonderful. Okay. Uh, I-, I have a, a real issue uh, with the proposed closing of the obstetrical unit in Gander. I mean, Gander uh, right now is one of the, outside the Avalon, uh, youngest and fastest growing communities uh out here you know and they choose to close our obstetrical unit and it's not only gander uh, gander services wesleyville and all around the loop so if uh if the unit in gander closes they have to go to grand falls and that is equivalent to someone from st john's driving to glovertown to have a baby i mean it's uh it's just ridiculous absurd So uh, I have a real concern with that, and I just want to voice my concern.
1: Yeah, and a lady called last week. She was really quite good on the topic and talking about the population growth over the last decade in Gander and compared to other areas or other communities close by, including Grand Falls, Windsor. Someone just sent me an email there from Twillingate, and, of course, they had obstetrics at Twillingate, and then they were moved to Gander. Now they've got to go not to Gander but all the way to Grand Falls in the very near future. So... Look, we see whether it be based uh, based on recommendations in the health accord, what have you, not because I say so, folks, but because this is coming, is we're going to see a reduction in services in a lot of communities. It's inevitable. Now, some of it might be based on population base. some of it might be based on politics, some of it might be based on the health accord, but this is happening, and getting it right is going to be pretty bloody important. But I was really caught off guard when the young lady last week, uh, young mother, she's got, I believe it was a two-year-old girl at home. Uh, Mm -hmm. The population growth in candor is very real, and how that was or was not factored in is a bit confusing to me.
9: Well, we've been trying to get the supporting uh, documentation to back up the decision and hopefully we'll get that soon but but Patty you know there's a bit of an irony in this whole thing and and uh, I agree totally with immigration there's two ways to grow your population immigration and birth rate and uh we are working very hard on the immigration side and I support it totally and this I think if I was a young family down in down around the loop and down uh, you know uh, planning to have a kid this would really concern me because look at this morning the highway is blocked on the west coast you know, and if I'm driving to go see, to have a baby, I mean, it's just, I, uh, there's no reason why there should not be two units in central Newfoundland. They have the numbers to support it. Of course, that's the argument. If, you know, there's first was the nurses, then it was the obstetrician, then it was the competencies, then it was the space. And all those arguments have been considered. And uh, I spent 40 years in the healthcare system. Uh, planning. And, uh, you know, Gander was the only place in central Newfoundland that had two new schools in the last few years. We're busting at the seams. And uh, to do this to uh, a unit or a place like Gander, and I know Twillingate and places like that lost their obstetrics years ago. But to have someone on the road that long, and if you were going to visit your obstetrician, you would go in an hour and a half, uh, two hour, two and a half hours, 10 minutes, okay, you're okay, you can go home again. Just think of the cost gas even you know it's just it's uh, it, uh, it behooves me and anyway uh, we're uh, we're still looking at this and we want reasons for it and we do not want to go back 40 years
1: appreciate the time this morning Dave thanks for the call
9: no problem thank you
1: take care bye-bye yeah we're going to hear these types of stories uh, repeatedly and he talked about the traffic issue at Birchi Narrows so the highway's closed in full completely impassable i think there was three transport trucks involved in the collision one jackknife i see a picture at com. one looks like the trailer is right out over the shoulder of the road uh take tim here dave before the break yeah he's been waiting a little while let's go to line number two tim you are on the air
10: hi patty how you doing this morning great you lovely good no but it's on out there it's been a good happy relief to be honest absolutely Um, yeah, no. I uh, wanted to give a shout in this morning, and kind of we, uh, I think anybody in St. John's, anyway, who might live outside the downtown area, might be coming up with a bit of a of a our annual. I call it the winter inconvenience ban. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's a little dramatic. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, the winter parking ban is on the go and uh, soon. And you know, I guess that's that date is kind of decided by the city. Um, you know, and I, I'm sure I'm not alone in having a lot of. Uh, Uh, like problems with this i guess a lot of beef with it um i got a ticket last year uh in february sometime for 75 dollars uh and there wasn't an ounce of snow on the avalon let alone in st john's it was raining it was 12 degrees and i got a ticket for 75 dollars and i can assure you because i've seen other cars on the road (laughs) when i got out in my my truck around one o'clock in the morning leaving my buddy's place uh they made a bunch of it like there was a ton of tickets issued and to me, this seems incredibly predatory. Um, it seems that it's, it's there to, to take money uh, from the citizens and gather and, you know, garner revenue for the city and not actually have any kind of purpose in, well, really in anything. It, it seems predatory. Um, I,
1: I, I fell prey to the same thing, Tim. I fell asleep on the couch. And when I woke up and I thought, oh, i got to put my truck in, Pfft, too late, take it. So I left it. And at that night, not a flake of snow to be seen. And we say this every single year. If... If there's snow plowing occurring and someone leaves their vehicle out on the street, give them a ticket. Absolutely. No problem. But if it's not snowing and there are no plows out, why are we writing tickets for that kind of stuff? And I believe the deputy mayor is coming on the show for something or other later in the week. I'll put it to her. Just for the dates so people don't know that it's coming, December 1st to March 31st, there's going to be a parking ban in particular in the downtown core. Outside the downtown core, it doesn't come into effect until January the 4th. January the 4th, yeah, between 12.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., so beware.
10: Yeah, there you go. Um, you know, and I just, like, I don't know if it's out there. Maybe you can help me with this. Um, I'd like to know the revenue generated by, those, by ticketing that, uh, because I I, genu- I genuinely believe that it's outrageous. Um, and the reason I see, I say this is I, I moved from Calgary about a year and a half ago. Um, you know, Calgary's got a p- bit of winter on the go. I think people know it gets cold up there. There's a bit of snow around, right? Mm-hmm. They've also... Um, You know, they have a a winter parking ban or snow route kind of thing all around the city, really, uh, in many places, especially the busier parts and the parts where people don't have driveways. But what they do is it says this ban or or no parking in this area when the uh, snow rules are in effect. And what they do is they have programs like your own, uh, radio, (laughs) TV, uh, newspaper or whatever, uh, the same way you just communicated when the ban is in place. And they announce that, say, hey, you know, there's weather coming for the next 72, 96 hours, you know, week, whatever, you can't park in this area. At the end of that, you can park there again. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, it's not, they're not taking money from citizens. What they're doing is they're making sure the roads are safe and clear. And they even took away, there was legislation up there to take away uh, these hidden uh, speed traps. So they, got, they would have undercover cop cars sitting in their little Kia Rios or whatever with uh, cameras. Giving people hundred dollar tickets because they were going through and what they what they came to conclusion in the legislation was uh, and the argument one was that it's predatory that there is nothing there with those cameras that is making the roadways more safe it's there to generate revenue off the backs of its own citizens and i have a very difficult time uh, as someone who's lived in the city well i'm 38 years old right now and i've moved away for four years so 30 34 years i've lived in the city i have a hard time believing that it's absolutely necessary to have no parking whatsoever on the street from January till March, or whenever it is. there's And, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. Uh, the, the plows aren't out there, and it's not necessary.
1: Yeah, when they're out, I have no problem with it. But I only gave half-accurate information for the downtown core. From December 1st to the 31st, parking prohibited on streets that are designated. That day, there no, to be no parking snow routes. And that'll be 24 hours a day. When designated, there'll be a sign in place prior to it kicking in. So at least that bit of proactivity is in place. But your summary point... Completely agree, 100%. As the victim of a $75 ticket, I couldn't agree with you more. I'll throw this out there get a quick reaction from you. So the tenders are in now for plowing the downtown core this year. The low bid came in at $370,000. The other two were over $800,000. So while we talk about the discrepancy between $10 million expansion of health care of the emergency room at the Health Sciences Centre comes in at $40 million. same thing here. What exactly is going on? There's a long way between three hundred seventy k and $800,000.
10: I 100% agree. You know, and, and and Patty, I'm a numbers guy. You know, I'm in sales. I've I worked in you know in an engineering job most of my life. If you can show me that that this revenue generated is is going to a good way or helping people out i'd be a little i mean i'm not i'm never gonna be happy about this to be honest getting a 75 dollars ticket when there's not a not snow on the ground but if i can see that it'd be great when I mean, we had no problem putting up that sunshine list and, and blasting everybody in the city that made over 100 grand for some arbitrary reason a couple of years ago they don't mind saying look at all these people making all this money you know and this and that and that and It caused a big uproar let's see let's hear what the city is making off the back of its people let's hear them bring it out and 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 speak for us you know i mean it, it, is the snow clearing expensive? Sure it is. But that's, you know, and we have taxes for that. But making me pay tickets when there's not an ounce of snow on the ground to help pay for that, I mean, that's taking advantage of people, I think. Uh, I mean, I live out near Barring Park. Uh, we got we got a tenant, you know, we got a, a, a two-apartment house, I guess is what you call it. Uh, and uh, the driveway is only big enough for two cars. i got to figure out what to do with my truck. I'm going to have to find somewhere to park that and either walk or get the bus or get my partner to drive me to it uh, once the winter hits because... You know, whether it's snow or not, it's going to cost me seventy-five dollars a day to park in front of my own house. Yeah. I just—I thought don't. I don't That—that to me seems like robbery. It seems like its is against. I don't know the right term for it, Patty. Is it's not? Uh, it's just not good to do that. Uh, Ethical—that's the word I was looking for. It's not. It's not really ethical to me.
1: The yeah. only problem, like even if I can, and I believe I can, get a number, the amount of revenue uh, garnered by the city on those types of tickets. The only problem with that number would be. How do you break out the nights where it was unfair or unethical to write a ticket because there was no snow, no plow? know, I know why they ticket, folks, because you can just picture it yourself. If the plow has to wind its way around my street, for instance, and people leave their vehicles out, the street becomes so narrow because of all these snow bumps that are still there because someone parked their truck or whatever their vehicle. So it becomes a winding cow path. So I know why they do it, but on the nights where it's unjustified, then that's, a, I'm going to have a hard time breaking that number out. But I think you've got everyone in town who's, or anyone in anywhere, who's got a parking ban coming this winter. If it's not snowing and you're not plowing, keep your ticket book in your rig and drive on.
10: Well, to be honest, Patty, I, you know, I guess, I mean, I don't have time for it. But I could do it, but. I- I got a hard time. Like they write down the date. There's an official document that goes into there, and they have to create a court date if you want to challenge challenge it or whatever. Um, you know, biggest. Uh, it's very well documented, I believe, by the city. Now is that more of a pain in the arse? Maybe, but you're you charging us an arm and a leg for it. Why not put some of that towards administration of it? I bet you we could find out what days. Uh, those tickets were, uh, you know, all, all the dates, and we could filter them easily by whether there was snow or not. I mean, these records exist, Patty. like Oh, they do.
1: Just- My point is that I don't think the city has done a breakdown like that for public disclosure. I bet you if I ask for right. a number, they'll tell me how much was written in winter parking bands and or parking on expired meters or parking in the blue zones. I mean, they'll give you those numbers, but the breakdown that you suggest, which is important, I don't imagine the city is pumping that data out like that. After the oh. break, Tim, glad you called. Yeah, thanks a lot, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Sid Wolanski is in the queue. He's the chair of the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. And then Noreen Corrine from up in Labrador wants to talk about what you heard from Jordan Brown, uh, the member for Lab West, yesterday on the program, I guess. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just for those of you living in Mount Pearl or visiting Mount Pearl, their parking ban, winter parking ban, kicks in on the 1st of December, Thursday, as well. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Sid Wolanski. You're on the air.
5: Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking the call. Happy to take
1: the call. Uh, of course, Sid is the chair of the uh, Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Welcome to the show. Uh,
5: thank you. Uh, I would like to say thank you to all those people uh, for my last call that uh, reached out to us and wanted to join the board. And we still have a few positions. However, I'd like to talk to you about the other call out I made on the program and that was to the government uh, for putting in place a uh, disability advocate for persons with disabilities, and they had, um, I hate to use the word promise, you know, the word promise in government is a, is a hard thing, uh, that they put a mandate letter out from the premier saying that uh, the minister should set this up, and we're still waiting. So the uh, International Day for the Persons with Disabilities is on December 3rd, and usually there's an announcement being made and I'm putting it out to the government. We're still waiting.
1: When was this pledge or promise made, Sid?
5: Well, <laughs> actually, there were two pledges, but the last one was on April 15th, uh, 2021, uh, when the uh, premier put a mandate letter out to the minister and said, please continue to work to establish an advocate for persons with disabilities in Newfoundland and Labrador and this was uh word for word from the uh, mandate letter. Uh we're still waiting. Now, just to put it in perspective, uh at the coalition we have a phone number that people call and uh we get some very 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 heartening calls. Um I won't go into them because of respect to the people that called. However, this is the job of a disability advocate and uh You know, injury uh, to insult is that the government pays us only $34,000 a year for us to maintain three employees and uh, work throughout the year. I think my predecessor uh, called that indentured servitude.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, Sid, quick question. What would sure. an advocate's position or office look like? Because, for instance, at the senior's advocate's office, it's the general terms, the general policy, as opposed to digging in with one specific complaint from one specific senior. What do you think the disabilities advocate should operate like? You know, high-level policy, 100,000 feet above sea level? Or would it be dealing with individual cases?
5: Uh, usually an advocate is someone that deals with individual cases that are um, – usually too hard for normal uh, uh, avenues to be resolved, uh, uh, something that would, the government would have to get involved in. Uh, some very, uh, let's say, a family with a, uh, a child with uh, some form of disability is, has to find uh, special housing and they can't, don't have a connection. Disability Advocate could probably give that connection. I mean, there's a lot of groups out there in the disability network, which is something that people don't realize. There's a network of us. Uh, the coalition uh, at this point is chairing the uh, network, and on, uh, we're hoping on Friday that we'll get some good information from them. Um, but it's it's a... Oh, Patty, you ask a hard question, because what wouldn't a disability advocate Uh, Do It's all these phone calls into how do I do this? Where do I go? Um, This is happening to me. How do we resolve it? These types of questions. And I know I'm not being extremely specific, but it's such a wide open area that's not even being handled that, uh, you know, this is what we're fighting for right now.
1: Yeah, and I only ask because, you know, there's all the different advocacy offices operate a little bit differently. You know, I know they all answer to the House of Assembly, for instance, but the seniors advocate, if I'm a senior and I call and I say, I have a concern with X, it doesn't mean that they will investigate and or deal with that in particular. They will treat it as a general topic of concern, foreign policy and recommendations around it. That's how I understand how uh, Miss Walsh's office operates. That's why I asked the question of you.
5: Uh- Again, it, <laughs> I wish I could answer that question no specifically because the number of things that are out there, we're just learning at this point uh, what's really needed around the province. I mean, we're talking about a large population. Um, it equals that of the seniors and includes seniors. Um, you know, and the government numbers are in one quarter and it's going to increase. And there is no real representation in government other than at the ministerial level. Uh, The DPO, which was a very large organization when it was first formed in the government, that's the Department of Persons with Disabilities, uh, is now down to just a couple of staff. And there's really no representation in government for the size of the community.
1: I appreciate the time, and next time we have an opportunity to speak with ministers responsible, we're happy to put it to them.
5: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for the, the time, Sid. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Sid Wolanski is the chair of the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Will we be coming back to line two, David? Let's take a break. When we come back, the vice president of advancement and external relations at Memorial University is Lisa Brown. She joins us next, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's say good morning to the vice president of advancement and external relations at Memorial University. That's Lisa Brown. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air.
11: Hi, Patty. How are you?
1: Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you?
11: Good. Happy uh, Giving Tuesday.
1: What was on on Giving Tuesday? I'm not really familiar with it, I don't think.
11: Okay, well, it's uh, it's an, an international day of giving. Um, it started, gosh, probably over 10 years ago now, for sure. And it follows the the typical buying frenzy, I guess, of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And and the idea is to encourage people to make uh, a donation. And all sizes of donation, it's really focused on participation, And so many charities around the world today are really uh, asking people to consider making a donation to them.
1: Can you give us some idea what some of these charities might be and where the donations will end up?
11: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Memorial University, for example, um, has uh, donations today, and we actually have a matching opportunity. So some really generous people have come together and are matching up to $50,000 for donations. And uh, you can designate your money to any particular faculty or school or cause within the university. But also um, the matching funds go towards a a student thriving fund which could help students in any way, from scholarships to uh, emergency response, for example, of students. We've had some students involved in the house fires, for example, this semester, and and the funding can help them with their emergency response. And and so many charities, um, you know, are really pushing Giving Tuesday as just a way for people to kind of think about not just, um, you know, the, the, the busyness of the season and the holiday season coming up, but also to remember that uh, it's also a good time to, to give uh, either of your time or, or your, uh, your money to deserving uh, charities.
1: And you come by this mindset, I'll say honestly, given your past as the CEO at Stella Circle, of course a social justice community organization. You know, And I'll, I'll remind folks that it's not that long ago the food bank at Memorial University, like every food bank in the province, was overwhelmed to the point where they had to close their doors. So there might be an opportunity for you to focus in on that. I know I think and talk about food on the show a lot, but I think it's a major issue.
11: Yeah, and certainly, uh, you know, poverty is a, is a major issue. I really appreciate um supporting students here in terms of you know trying to support them as they they make a better life for themselves really and for their families and so uh, I was really pleased my husband and I who uh, t- to be able to make a donation uh, to memorial today and I encourage others to uh, to consider it as well and again it's about participation you know Uh Asking people just to, to kind of start to get in the habit of giving. And so Giving Tuesday is really all about that. And of course, the matching fund is really um, compelling for today, for sure.
1: It's an additional enticement, so I have no question about it. This is a little bit off the beaten track of Giving Tuesday. And hopefully, if they have the capacity and the wherewithal, they'll consider making a donation today but we talked about the stress for coming up with adequate food and then the housing crunch which has always been a big deal at Mon but this year more so than oh, i can remember anyway in the recent past i've been talking about and i wonder has it made to the level of vice president at memorial university to reinstate the home share program for graduate students or international students, you pair them up with a senior in the community. So for a low cost of rent in exchange for some taking on some household duties, whether it be washing the dishes or shoveling the driveway, it's a win-win for everyone involved. The university, the senior, the student, has that been even discussed?
11: Um, it's. Uh, I remember hearing about it prior to me starting within the university. I'm not sure if uh, uh, I haven't heard about it fairly recently, but it is uh, certainly an a good idea in terms of the partnering, addressing the housing issues, those sorts of things. Interestingly, um, the international office is inviting people to invite some international students over for uh, for dinner during the upcoming uh, Christmas season, as, as many of them are, are staying home versus... Um, or or sorry, staying in residence versus going home. Mm -hmm. And so those are small examples of ways that we can help support some of the students as well.
1: It's not like I'm a member of the Board of Regents or anything, but I think when we had to see all the struggles that, in particular, international students, but of course not everyone at MUN comes from St. John's either, so housing became a real problem this year. Vacancy rate year over year was about 9% last year. This year it was around 3%. The cost of rent has has just exploded, so I'll just put it out there because I thought it was a great idea when we had the former coordinator, Sherry Ritter on this show. It went by the wayside for the sake of $40,000 in funding. So, anyway. Uh, Also, last one, and I'll let you go. I know you're busy. You were in the room when the decision was made to remove the singing of the Ode to Newfoundland at the convocation ceremonies. It was talking about inclusion, and I don't know if you heard my comments, but I said taking something away is the opposite of inclusion. So, has it been reconsidered at all? Maybe it's a big deal in some corners, not in others. You know, maybe add the Ode to uh, Labrador to their ceremonies and proceedings, or is that going to be revisited?
11: Uh, I think there's still lots of, I mean, there's still lots of discussions about this topic. It was obviously a really uh, hot one for many people, and, and many people had a kind of an immediate visceral reaction to it. Um, you know, when we looked at the decisions, and there have been lots of changes to convocation. Um, and and many of them were not really even particularly publicized, and this one did get a lot of attention. And, uh, you know, we feel that when we looked at how do you make sure that the ode is really student-centered and and how do we make sure that uh, we just keep up with the times in terms of convocation, we did make the decision. We're still talking about it, but I, I would say to you that when you look at things like, the exclusion of a part of the province, um, the colonial nature of both odes, um, you know the reaction that we've gotten from a number of people uh, in Labrador and others uh, that that you know the decision is still uh, still continues to be made as as it was at that time.
1: I appreciate making time for the show, and once again, happy Giving Tuesday to you as well.
11: Thank you so much, Patty.
1: You're welcome, Lisa. Take care.
11: Bye-bye.
1: bye Lisa Brown is the VP of Advancement and External Relations at Memorial University. Let's see. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, appreciate your patience up there, Noreen. We'll get to you right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number seven. Good morning, Noreen. You're on the air.
12: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning?
1: Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing,
12: Good, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to follow up, and I know uh, you uh, didn't host the show yesterday morning, but I just wanted to follow up on MHA Jordan Brown's call, and I think the discussion was sort of around uh, the need to increase the uh, capacity of affordable housing in order to bring uh, workers into our towns, in order to operate our towns, because right now, of course, like many places, we're short on workforce. Uh, our retail has shown it. Our industry has shown it. It's been displayed I guess everywhere, no different than, than a lot of towns, but uh, I guess the side of it I guess that jordan didn't uh, didn't talk to was uh, what, the part that I always talk to is okay how are we going to solve this? so this is how i look at it on any given week or any given month in our twin towns uh, while while volunteering around our seniors we have so many seniors who live in three story houses two story houses some live, many live alone many many live alone many have partners or spouses who are their mobility issues is majorly challenged we have uh, Persons, again, you know, with husbands or spouses suffering from dementia. And <clears throat> until something is done to facilitate some type of seniors living in this town, the housing, affordable housing crunch is not going to change.
1: Probably not. Um, and, you know, it's probably a different issue in Lab West than it is in other parts of the province. So just to remind me of what you thought was missing in the conversation, the, the headline?
12: Well, what I found was missing was uh, you know absolutely we have an affordable housing crunch, but you know uh, if we sit down together and come together, I think there's many solutions to fixing the problem you know if if the If the challenge is the um, unavailability of buying affordable housing, we have many, many seniors, like I said, who live alone, are more than willing to relinquish the big homes they live in and i'm sure at a decent price if they can be supplied with safe affordable retirement living which would free up the market and you know <clears throat> take care of the supply and demand of homes
1: Yeah, and they're talking about building a multi million dollar facility, Happy Valley Goose Bay. It sounds more like an emergency shelter approach than it does about actual affordable housing, which I know was a big catch all. Affordable housing can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, You know, I've said this before, and some people think I'm out to lunch, but when negotiating. Uh, royalty deals and returns to the province but in particular in your area the mining sector I for the life of me can't understand why when you have the boom and bust cycle which impacts of course those not working in the mine more than the folks working in the mines why they haven't been uh, funneling that money directly to housing issues in the area I'll never understand
12: No, I know. But again, you know, I'm a firm believer until something changes, like I said, we have many, many homes. I have many seniors. We did a survey, you know, who's on the list, you know, if they had some type of alternative retirement living. I mean, right now we have many seniors who live in homes who you cannot get somebody to come and shovel a doorway. Snow clearing is a major expense. Maintenance on those homes is major. And many of these seniors are, you know, in 80-plus years who just cannot live at home any longer. And I know home first is the wonderful buzz, but you cannot buy a home care worker to go into a home here. So, like, something has to be done to meet the needs of these seniors. And until that situation starts to change... Like, I, I really can't see uh, anything happening, you know, with the affordable housing crunch. Like, there, as I've said many times, there's no assisted living. There's no seniors' apartments. There's no senior complex living. The only type of living is long-term care unit at the hospital, and bless their hearts, they do their best to accommodate people who need it. But, you know, if you have somebody who fall and uh, break a hip and can't go back to their home because of mobility issues, they end up going into long-term care and in a matter of months go downhill from what really doesn't need to be the case.
1: Yeah, because everywhere else in the province, uh, placement in a long-term care facility is based on medical need, not the fact that there's nothing else available.
12: Well, absolutely, and yeah. again, I will say, bless the hospital because you know they they definitely do their best and squeeze you in for whatever the reasons might look like. But uh, yeah, until until uh, you know, it's it's uh, an agreement between municipalities, MHA, provincial. Federal Government sit down, and I mean our seniors group applied three times, we did three proposals to the rapid housing initiative for funding you know for seniors living, and of course, the same cry come back every time it costs too much. so if anybody out there is sitting and thinking that the cost is going to change, they got lessons to learn because, as we all know I look at the we look at the uh, the cost of health science uh, um, Construction. I mean, we look at all construction, where it is in a matter of a year. So, I mean, that piece is definitely not going to change. So, until we start doing something different and start looking at, and and, uh, and bearing down on the real issues and doing something about it, I really don't see major changes happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly nothing is going to be less expensive this time next year. There's no reason to believe that's going to be the case. And, Absolutely you know, not. when we say affordable housing, You know, whether it be what is actually emergency housing, versus what is uh, affordable housing for a senior, or someone with a mental health concern, or someone with who's coming out of poverty, or someone trying to reintegrate into society. These are all different things, requiring a different type of affordable house. So, Absolutely. yeah, we've got and to I, figure and, this and out. And I
12: always say to government, you know, like, okay, you know, a, a unit can look very different, and it can have accommodations for all that you just mentioned. And, you know, uh, the availability of getting a home care worker, you would have much more promise of getting a home care worker to to go into a unit and serve three seniors and get 40 hours a week than doing one senior while getting 12 hours a week.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
12: <laughs> so like, there's, lots of, there's lots of creative ways around it.
1: There always will be. And, you know, for some instances, and not to derail the lab West Pacific, but just in Happy Valley Goose Bay, just building a multi million dollar facility doesn't address the fact that, you know, there's 80 people living on a trail network, which was like 25 some very few years ago. So a roof over your head is just a start. But it's a good start, but it doesn't get to understanding exactly how people ended up there either.
12: No. No, absolutely. And I just before I go, I just want to put an invitation out to all my seniors in uh, Lab West, Wabu, Labrador City. We have uh, Susan Walsh, the senior's advocate, of course, who's doing her uh, cross-province uh, consultations. And she's going to be visiting us here on the 6th of December. So, again, I invite my seniors to come out and highlight these needs and the needs of seniors in our twin towns.
1: Absolutely. Good to have you on the show this morning, Noreen.
12: All right. Take care, Patty. You too. Bye-bye. All right.
1: Bye-bye. Uh, So is that that call back excellent was his name Sean? Okay, let's go line number three Sean you're on the air
13: Patty, before I get into and good morning to you and your listeners Uh, Before I get into my main topic. I heard Colin on earlier talking about the 1983 case of those two women raped and murdered in Toronto And I have to agree with him You know if you got on the air this morning and started spreading rumors that a certain person is going to be charged soon with these murders and uh, name him and do it all You'd be down in Supreme Court having to get up in a witness stand and prove that, that what you said actually happened and that person is guilty or else you're you're guilty of libel.
1: Yeah, but that's not what oh. happened here. I mean, the police have charged him. It's not that, oh, we're floating around, we're thinking that this guy did it. They they actually charged him.
13: No, he's not charged yet.
1: Say what? The news story he's I read not, pretty short sure said that they charged Joseph no, so-and-so no. Saunders.
13: Yeah, but they were going to do the charge, I think, in court today or tomorrow. And this was all preliminary. Unless I'm wrong, unless I, I, I misheard it, but you know this happens a lot in Canada. Like you are starting to be like the U.S. In the U.S., they're telling you the whole story, everything that happened in the case. The guy hasn't even been in court yet, and we're starting to do that kind of thing here in Canada. So I don't know what the rush is with the police to get all this information out. I like the idea that they let the public know that they're that they have someone in custody, and that uh, and they believe that's the person, so to calm a neighborhood or a city down. That's not. That's very good. But to actually name someone before he's actually been charged in court, I thought that's what Colin was.
1: Yeah, okay, getting. so it reads that he was arrested in northern Ontario, brought to Toronto right. to face two counts, so they didn't bring him down just for a day trip, so that he will be presented in the court and charged formally with two counts of first-degree murder. That's fair enough.
13: That's right. Now, so to get back into my own thing, anyone in Newfoundland Laboratory today that has a an, uh, an iPhone or any kind of phone that that you're just as upset as I am seeing all this advertising fly across your phone, almost anywhere you Google to find out for example, um, what's going on today at a certain store, what their Black Friday deal is, whatever it is. You you open yourself up to advertising. So that actually happened to me. So I have a phone number to give you in a minute, but uh, to the CRTC in Ottawa, uh, which is your first contact, because I had a hell of a time last Friday trying to get through to, to the TELUS network to tell them that there's an additional $20 charge on my phone on my phone and you know, I hardly even see it. It just happened, I happened to be going down through my emails and I saw the TELUS bill there and then the amount and I said that's not the right amount. I don't pay that much and uh, so I, I dug into it a bit, couldn't figure it out and um, so I put a call into them as usual you get someone down in the Philippines and they can't help you. They're just here to pacify you and tell you that whatever's going on, they can't help you anyway, and uh, you'll have to figure out a way to deal with it, or you shouldn't have charged it to your phone in the first place. I said, well, I use my credit card to charge things. I don't use my phone, for the most part, or my phone network. The actual provider, and in this case, is TELUS. Um, So I finally managed to find a number through a friend of mine within the TELUS organization. He said, look, try this number. You might get lucky. So I called that number, finally got through to someone senior, who then came on and said and listened to my point and uh, and I said look I've got a third or at least I got a charge on my phone and it's for $20 this month and I don't know what it's for and I didn't and I don't do any purchasing through the TELUS company itself if I buy something online it'll be because I'm using my Visa card but this is a whole new thing that one of the cell phone companies in Canada and only one is doing so he, he finally after about an hour and 10 minutes on the phone, came back and said, okay, we will take that charge off your phone. That was a recurring charge, by the way, Patty. He's gonna charge me that every month. And it was a gaming platform that when I swiped to ignore it, to, to push it off my screen, when you swipe it, you actually accepted it. Now, I didn't know that. And I bet most of your listeners don't know it, but I swiped it to get rid of it. And that was the, the okay to go ahead and feel me. I want that service. And I, and I never wanted the service. Uh, but Telus are responsible for that. They're the ones that are getting paid a big commission by that company uh, or by that gaming provider down the state somewhere uh, to actually uh, provide that serve, so-called service that I didn't want in the first place uh, to my phone. So when I called the CRTC after they finally, the Telus company finally agreed to reverse it and take it off my phone, which was much, much... Uh, work on my behalf is convinced that looks us tell me yesterday that that's the only company in the country kudo which is owned by by telus and telus is doing it as well They're the only ones that are operating this what's called a third party billing that can surprise you because you don't know what it's for and then try to get it reversed as, you know it's like walking on hot coals it's just so hard to do so I wanted to bring that up to your to you this morning and see if
1: you've heard anything about that. I haven't. And I'm a customer, so you're telling me something I had no idea was actually happening. I know there's going to be some issues with billing, and especially if you pay your telecom bill on your credit card, you are going to get uh, an additional charge, just like at some retailers, that is going to be yeah, in this, place. I, I heard what yeah, you but said. This yeah.
13: is not, but see, this is not that. This is a 3rd party billing yeah. you know, okay, endorsed by Telus and TELUS get paid to try and get you to buy it. And imagine, just by swiping up on your phone, I didn't even accept it. I just got rid of the, the ad that filled up my phone. And, um, and that was that. So the look of the, the headaches and, and the time you gotta put in, I think it was an hour and 30 minutes just through that group at TELUS. By the time I talked to Manila and then called back and found, the, found the, the contact number. And then by the time I was on the phone yesterday with CRTC to let them know this is happening, and the guy at CRTC told me, yes, it's happening, we've got several complaints, The CRTC is looking at it now. But then the, the key point was he said, that company is the only cell phone company in Canada doing that. And he said, they're, you know, they're very seriously looking at handling or dealing with it tell us. I said, well, you can't waste any time. Look at the size of our country, and almost everybody has a cell phone. And, and therefore everyone is, is can be victimized to it, it's just a terrible thing. So for people not to know about and how to deal with it. So the 800 line with CRTC is 888-221-1687. Again, it's 888-221-1687, and then they will direct you to which uh, uh, upper-level people you should deal with within TELUS. And if you don't get any success at that upper-level area, which I did, it was taken care of already but the crtc has another number that they'll give you to call back and then they'll deal with it okay. but it's serious i thought i should let you know today about it
5: and i
1: appreciate you doing it thanks a lot sean
0: okay take care take him. care
1: all right bye-bye it is time for the news when we come back ross is there christy's there their topics we'll find out don't go
0: away take a break join us weekdays from 12 30 to 1 p.m as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now it's all on the table during your vocm lunch break and welcome back. Let's go to the top
1: of the board. Line number one, Ross, you're on the air.
3: Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm doing very
1: well. How about you?
3: I'm doing good. I opened up some mail this morning, and I have a I sent you an email uh, copy of it just so you can have a look at. I noticed that my manual life life insurance policy has increased, and the reason for the increase is that uh, as a result of the scheduled increase, this amount is no longer enough to cover. Your policy cost, and we will increase the amount be withdrawn to match your new policy cost amount. My um, my initial amount always being withdrawn. This is a, uh, a policy I've had with them now for about 20 years. It was $74.50 a month. Now they're increasing it to $179.57 a month, so we're increasing it from $74 to $179 because they say that um, the amount is no longer enough to cover your policy cost.
1: A $105 per month increase is amazing. So, unable to cover costs of the policy, all of a sudden, is this because you turned a certain age, or was this predictable, or has this come out of nowhere?
3: I'm 56 years old. um, There's there's been no um, uh, change in my health. There's been no questions from them to me about my health or anything like that. Uh, I can just go only go by, uh, I haven't called my agent yet, but I'm going to, but I can only go by what they say right here, is that the amount is no longer enough to cover your policy cost? Maybe, I don't know, maybe they use diesel for some (sighs) sort (laughs) of I shouldn't be laughing. Uh,
1: Yeah, I mean, there's the insurance business is, I'll just use the word interesting. So whether it be about the number of claims that have been filed and or, get this, If they don't do well in their investments in the market, they'll recover costs by increasing my premium. And the actuarial table should not include anything to do with their investments. It should do with how much premiums are coming in the door, how many claims have been filed, how much compensation has been paid. The end. Not how they do with their investments, which factors in, which maddens me to no end. Uh, This is a curious one. I have a friend in the business. Well, I think we're still friends after all the bashing I do with the insurance industry. Uh, I'm going to give him a call and ask him if he's if It's the same across the board here, because I can see your, uh, I see your email and I see the company. My friend is not with that particular company, so I'll see what's happening in their world. But that's a massive increase.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's a 125% increase. Yeah. In the policy that I've had, you know, with them for 20 years, Yeah.
1: Yeah, from seventy four fifty to one seventy nine fifty seven per month, starting this uh, uh, this year, next month. Uh, let me see if I can find out if it's happening across the board because yeah, that's an inexplicable so bump. Me, the
3: other listeners are noticing this now. Normally, I don't even open up uh, the policy uh, renewal because I always renew it every year. And I just assume it's, it's going to happen. It might be a slight increase, but this one, I, I'm shocked that's gone. You know that amount. Yeah,
1: it's twelve hundred and sixty dollars a year. That's a fair chunk of change.
3: Yep, and that's only one of several insurance policies that I'm sure many people have multiple policies, and um, you know, so it's uh, it's just to put the notice out there to the people, I guess, to check their mail or check their emails to see if they've got an increase that they're not aware of, because if they just let it roll over and, and not pay attention to it, just like that gentleman who called about his twenty dollars on his cell phone, uh, I mean, if you don't pay attention, I mean, the company is getting it, you're not aware of it, and. Bottom, bottom dollar is your own dollar, which is harder to come, uh, harder to, uh, to spread right now. So
1: yeah, and some of the increases are are small, and so you might not notice them. But all of a sudden, people who dig deep on their bills monthly, which I would imagine is more and more people these days, you know, yeah. you got to identify what's happening here. So it's one thing if it's a dollar ninety nine; uh, it's another thing if it's a hundred and five dollars more per month. I appreciate the heads up, Ross. I'll make a call after the show. Yeah, all right, bye bye. Thanks, bye bye, man. Uh, let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Christy. You're on the air.
14: Hey, Patty. How's it going?
1: Uh, I'm doing okay. How you doing?
14: Uh, I'm okay. Um, I'm just calling because last week you brought up medical assistance and dying I a did. couple times. And uh, it's a subject that um, matters a lot to me. And before I start talking about it, I just really want to say that I don't want to be fear-mongering or accusing people of being malicious. It's just um, extremely important, and I hope people understand exactly what's happening. So I don't know if people know, but in March of 2023, medical assistance in dying will no longer be excluded for people with mental illness. And as someone with several mental illnesses who has struggled with suicidal ideation since the age of 10, this is extremely close to my heart, and no matter how I look at it, no matter how I look at people and try to give them the benefit of doubt, it seems like um, we only have a couple options when it comes to it. Um, one is accept it, think it's good to go, and people like me be able to apply in March. Or two, um, you know, complete magic and pull a rabbit out of a hat and do a complete overhaul of the system, which doesn't seem possible within four months. Or three, extend it and extend the exclusion and work extensively on increasing access to mental health care because as someone who tries very hard to work on my mental health it's not completely accessible for even me and I'm very worried for people who aren't as privileged and are in not able to pay privately for care they need and I guess I'm calling because I want to encourage people to write their MP this is a federal decision but also their MHA because this is the care that we are given is mostly decided on a provincial level. And I also have a question for Tom Osborne. Does he think that we have adequate mental health care to justify people being able to apply for MAID? Um, if their sole illness is mental illness, and I'm not trying to be unfair. I'm not, I'm, I know there are extreme cases, but my mental illness, I believe two of them are specifically named in that bill. And I can tell you that as someone who, uh, Sorry, I don't want to cry. <laughs> you take Dr. your
1: time. I'll hop in here for a second. You just take your breath and take okay. your time. Yeah. So the initial concept of medical assistance and dying, when it was first being discussed at the federal level, I understood it. And I thought, you know, someone who's terminal and in intolerable pain and goes through all of the consultations, meets the eligibility requirements to have a death associated with dignity and on their own terms. I got it. But when we see stories now where it's being used simply because people are poor and people need a a specific set of home supports, and whether it be the two ladies in Ontario, they needed just some special housing with uh, ventilation systems that worked, and because we didn't offer them the supports, they chose dying. That can't be the way. We don't have enough supports for mental health in this province. We don't have the access to long-term mental health, which you are such a great advocate for. And so consequently, People are going to find themselves in a position mentally and emotionally where they think the only way out is through this program, when in fact the only way out is through better support systems, more investment, better understanding of the issue, not allowing people to, no, pardon, not allowing, not having people make the final decision that I can no longer live like this, so you can take my life, as opposed to I can't live like this, where's the help?
14: Yeah, exactly. And like I said, I don't want to be fear mongering or say that I understand people's like suffering, right? I, I'm not trying to diminish that at all. No. It just, it doesn't feel like we are able, accessibility to mental health care should be prioritized before this. And it. I know they're working on it. But if there's one line here all the time, if it takes time, it takes time. And we're running out of time. This is March seventeenth, 2023. It, the clock is ticking, and I'm not seeing people get the help they need. I mean, just yesterday, I got a long message from someone who is not able to get what they need, and it's, I just, I really want the government to hear this, and I want the public to make their opinion known to the representatives, because it's... I know how uncomfortable it is, and I think we can all say that we want people to have access to die with dignity. We don't want people to be suffering, but something feels very, very wrong with this. And, like, at the very least, we are not ready.
1: I know for sure we're not ready. And just from where I sit, Christy, I want to reassure you that None of this came across as fear-mongering or unnecessary. Uh, It's absolutely a required conversation that we have to have. I know it was uncomfortable for many when I brought it up last week. I thought long and hard about how I should talk about it. I don't know if I did a good or bad job on it, but I knew that if we don't put it out there for public conversation and for public understanding then some of these decisions are going to be made after the fact, by the time the public latch on to it and say, wait now, really? Is this actually happening? And it's coming, and we've got to talk about it. And so you're a better position than most to bring it forward and speak about it from a learned position. I can only put it out there for public consideration, but I'm glad that you heard it, and I'm glad that you called on it, as much as it is as traumatic an issue that I've ever brought up on the show.
14: It is. It's extremely traumatic, and for people with lived experience i think is sending an extremely dangerous message because you know my whole life i've been told to fight and to try and this feels like very very mixed messaging and suddenly like i'm just very confused and if there's something big that i'm missing then please i hope the mps call in because every single mp I believe, in um, Newfoundland and Labrador voted yes to take away this exclusion.
1: I'll keep the conversation going, Christy, and I'm really pleased that you joined us this morning. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye?
14: Um, Just, as always, to people who are feeling hopeless, I hope I don't discourage you from reaching out for help. I know that there are people who want to, so please never let this conversation about lack of access stop you. Um, I mean, I heard the um, I believe Michelle from the Irish Kirby House say, please don't be discouraged from asking for help. And I want to say that to people with mental illness as well, because I mean, I'm demonstrating every week because I want people to get that, the care they deserve.
1: Keep it up, Christy. Thanks for this.
14: Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. And thanks for this as well.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Right, you I mean, the concept of medical assistance and dying, look, I understand that. And there are people where options have run out. Medical treatments have been exhausted. And it's intolerable pain for them and their families and everyone that loves them. And they have no, they have no hope. They've been given a terminal prognosis. But that's very different than issues regarding mental illness. And there can be some absolutely severe mental illnesses where maybe some hope has been lost. But the eligibility that's changing... You know, it's a tricky conversation, but we're not afraid to have it because we have to have it. Let's take a break. When we come back, there's another caller who wants to talk about that third-party billing issue. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go line three. Caller, you're on the air.
15: Good day, Mr. Daly. Good day. Yeah, I was listening to that uh, guy on there the, about uh, phones. Yep. And I was in the same situation now, almost by four months now. And I only have the old flip-flop phone. That's all I've got. Okay. And I just use that phone just for make a megaphone call. And uh, now he says I owe him $36, but that's almost five months ago. And you know, it's, it's unreal. You can't get hope to him. I was on the phone yesterday for 33 minutes and I got someone out in the Philippines and he couldn't understand a word I was saying. But uh, I still pay my monthly bill. But I'm certainly not going to pay for what he says I was there charged me for. He said I was using data on the phone, but like I say, uh, I don't use no data because I'm not set up for that. So all I got, like I say, I got phone that's unlimited calling, twenty four seven, but they're still billing me. Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, some of these things. I know full well that some of them are designed to not be necessarily identified right away. Consequently, they can pad their bills a little bit. But if someone wants to reject some type of service and they're eligible and able to do so, it shouldn't be a fight. It should be a quick phone call and done.
15: You know, I've been at that for the last three months, Mr. Dillian. Just can't get no satisfaction. But like I say, I, I paid my monthly bill. If you want to call me someday and you got me disconnected, that's okay. Yeah. But I'm not paying the $36.
1: I hear you.
2: Right?
15: Yep. And, and may I speak about something else about the cable company? Uh uh, like I say, I'm going with another provider, and I tried yesterday. I, was, I ducked most me my time. I was 52 minutes on the phone, and I got someone in the Philippines again. And uh, can I name the, the provider for cable? Sure. But. Sure. And what was happening? Well, I, well I'm going with another provider now, eh? And I want to disconnect. And I was on the phone for about 15 minutes. They took every bit of information that was required, the date of birth, every, uh, my account number, everything. But when I mentioned that word,
1: disconnect, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you got the wrong department. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no doubt. And so did you accept being put on hold or redirected or what oh, happened then? We used just put on hold, redirected for another 19 minutes.
15: And then and I said, And then I just, uh, just unplugged my phone saying. And that was enough.
1: Yeah, I mean they, they can wait you out, can't they? Uh, it's just it's a handful dealing with the big companies, boy. Must say. Well, the killer about Shaw here, there's no service.
15: Like you say, if he has any problem at all, he got no representation here which like would come to fix your problem. Do you definitely have nobody. Yeah. So like I say, I, I I told him to disconnect me, and I told him that he can keep on billing me if he wants to, but I'm not going to pay for something that I haven't
1: got. I don't blame you. Yeah, why would you? Uh, and you know, that, stuff like that happens all the time, boy. And, you know, you have to fight the good fight when, in fact, it should be treated as a company oversight, a quick apology, and amends made. Yes, like you say, we give them all the necessary information, mm-hmm. when, when they said, what's your reason of calling?
15: Please disconnect me. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, got transferred to a large department.
1: Yeah. But, so, I mean, wouldn't you have gone through the menu already to the, declare what you're calling for?
15: Yes, that's what I mean. Say, yeah. right, and, and he took all the information. But when I said that word, what's the reason for calling? Yeah, I want to disconnect, please. So yeah. that's uh, that's all I want to talk about today, Mister Daly. Like I say, and then the killer is like I say. If you even want someone from the, if you even want to talk to someone on customer service in the Bank of Nova Scotia, you have got to get the Philippines. It's unreal.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, they ship those jobs out of country, save tons of money, all the while nickel and diming us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's it for me, Mr. Delia. You have a nice day. The very same to you. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, at the one hand, they're saving tons of money by how and where they hire people, where their call centers are. And at the exact same time, they are absolutely nickel and diming us. To you know what? All right, uh, I've got to leave a little bit early. I have an appointment this morning, but thankfully Linda Swain has agreed, graciously, to send it for me for the 11:30 news and onward. So I've got to see what's happening on Twitter. We're him up online. Follow Sarah Catherine. She says she also she agrees with getting rid of the exclusion. Mental illness can be intolerably painful and exhausting. All treatment options doesn't always help, but for some. It does. It's whether or not you can actually get the timely treatments, get the access to long-term care. If we haven't satisfied that, then I'm with Christy. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, Brenda's there. She wants to talk about identity theft, and Norman's got an issue with his cost of living check. I'll talk to you all in the morning. Bye bye.
0: Weekday mornings from five thirty to nine. Jump your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
16: And Linda Swain in for Patty Daly. He had to uh, dart out for a quick appointment. So uh, happy to help out in any way. Uh, we're going to go now to the caller on line five who has a quick question, I understand. Hello.
6: Hi, Linda. Yes. Just wondering if you know of a program that collects good used bikes that kids are not using anymore and refurbishes them for other kids to have
13: or.
16: That's a good question. I know there used to be uh, one time uh, a place that used to do that kind of thing. Um, I'm wondering if if you have a used bike that you'd like to donate. I'm wondering if the Association for New Canadians might take it.
6: Well, I tell you now, I don't have one personally, but I have seen in passing at a couple of different houses that there's bikes laid down by the garbage box. So, I mean, you know, they're going to go, so... Yeah, I mean, maybe if if you can find uh, a name of something and just put it on the air for maybe tomorrow morning, people are maybe not aware, because there's lots of kids that could use it, right, whether it was
16: worn or not, right? You're absolutely right, uh, and you're raising a great point, so uh, we'll have a look at that and see if any of our listeners might know of something, and uh, we'll certainly let people know. Really appreciate your call.
6: Sure. No problem. Thank you so much. Have All a right, good one.
16: You too. Bye-bye. And it's a good observation. Now, Alex is on the air and you have a, an accident to tell us about. What's going on, Alex?
17: Yeah, there's an accident there on the Peacekeepers Highway there. I just turned off the uh, Foxtrot back to head towards town and it seems like the traffic's not moving at all because there's uh, multiple cars trying to turn around on the highway to get back the other way. So it ought be good to avoid it. Come on up to the old way and have a look at the good old CBS instead of going up the Peacekeepers.
16: <laughs> Very good. So it's uh, on the Peacekeepers Highway near the Fox Trap access?
17: I'm guessing it's probably there uh, between the Foxtrap access and where you come on to the Peacekeepers Derby manuals.
16: Okay, gotcha. And it's heading towards town?
17: Uh, I couldn't really tell because there was that much traffic backed up.
16: Oh, go on. All right. So obviously there's some kind of a traffic snarl up there. Avoid the area if at all possible. Head down in through CBS. That's right. All right. Really appreciate that, Alex. Thanks so much.
5: No problem. Have a good day.
16: You too. Bye-bye. And if there's anybody in the area who wants to give us an idea of what's actually happening there, uh, by all means, um, do so. We're going to go now to Norman. You're on the air. Hi, Norman.
17: Hello. How are you? Not too bad, I suppose, Madeline. That's good. I know you from years ago, by the way. So, uh, do you remember when you went out with a fella down the Pirate's Cave years ago, where we were young, and I gave you a pat on the shoulder and congratulated you? <laughs>
16: remember that, idea? The simple fact that it was at the Pirate's Cave tells me that I no- I don't
17: remember. <laughs> you were we? With- uh, was this name ring a bell? Uh, no, George don't go for...
16: naming anybody. I don't wanna hear it. <laughs> okay.
17: I'm, talking, I'm calling about uh I'm calling about the money, the five hundred dollar money what the bank is doing and uh, I know you don't investigate like Patty, but you can uh, get that keep after and uh, why are they holding for five days a hundred dollars out of our check? Sib Cody don't mention that on the, or fewer, I'll no, no, mention that on the, on, the, on the news. So,
16: is that what you encountered? You tried to cash your check, and they're holding me some of it. And four,
17: me, me and me and in the Bank of Nova Scotia were there, and we couldn't cash our check to the counter. But the girls took us outside when they they handled the cash machine, and they gave us back our four hundred and the hundred stayed in there, and they said. Five days' time, we got to hold it. We'll let you know what's going on then. Uh, Sydney and Cody, no one there, no one I've had no one knows nothing about that. i swear, a square thing. Patty don't know nothing about that, but I don't.
16: Well, um, it, it may have something to do with um, how you cash it. I'm not 100% oh, sure. All I heard
17: down the bank is the, the Nova Scotia Bank is uh, very particular about uh, taking the money that's coming for the $500 from Newfoundland.
16: Okay, it's something definitely they got, they got
17: to look into here. then. So what would the $100 do about that? Covered insurance for it or what? Or what? Uh,
16: apparently it's not happening to everyone, and I'm not sure the reasons why. Oh, I know
17: it's not happening to everybody because uh, there's only uh, there's only us people that's getting our oldie's pension that's happening to. They're not happening to anyone that's getting... Well, there's no one big with big money getting anything yet, right? With big, big, big salaries. But... Uh, I need my eyes done now for seven months. I'm almost blind and I needed that six to five hundred dollars plus another hundred I had to bomb till I get my check in January. Now I can't go into Saint John to get my eyes done because it's eighty dollars to get my eyes done in Carbonear. It's twenty dollars back and forth for a taxi. that's one hundred and twenty there. And then to go to Saint John for the first trip, the same as second trip, it's uh hundred and twenty dollars in and forty dollars an hour for for every hour you wait, it seems like everybody are three and four hours. And uh you get one eye done and then a little while after a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks when you when they can fit you in, the other one is done. So that comes to over six hundred bucks. Uh so one hundred but... means a bit, don't it, my darling?
16: It does indeed. Uh, it makes a big difference to you for sure. Uh, Norman, I'm t- being told by Dave, who's getting some calls from people off the air, saying that in some cases they will hold the check if you don't have any money in your account. They'll hold I don't it.
17: Le- Listen, my darling, that, okay, that's right. Let me let me tell you something. They want to get interest on my money, right? This is the Bank of Nova Scotia, right? I'm after getting here, my darling, in the last... Well, it's about 25 calls every month. Have you lost your card? Uh, do you want to uh, get your card back? And all this old stuff from the the, 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 the the teeth, I call them, trying to get our money. You listen to me?
16: I'm listening to you.
17: I take my money out of the bank. When I get my uh, money in the bank, I go down and take it all out. I leave a uh, dollar or two dollars to keep my bank open. That's it.
16: Ah, so that and might be what Dave is telling it. me might be true. We're getting lots of calls. Um, that what Dave is telling me then might be true, that they might be holding the money because you don't have money in your account. I'm not sure the reasoning behind that, but yeah, that sounds like why what's
17: happening Why have I got have money in my amount, you think, Linda, when I got a $500 check passed in them? Yeah, If a cheque is good according to Sib John Cody, I don't need to have no money in bank. i got enough money in the bank to keep my account open.
16: Yeah. Uh, I hear you on that, uh, Norman. We'll, we'll see if we can get some answers from uh, the various banks about that.
17: Oh, I'm not worried about you. i, I, I just give you the the, 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 the reason why I, call it. I let you pass it around to Patty and between you and Patty and tomorrow or the next day you might have something announced on the, on, on the over the air.
16: All right. I appreciate that, Norman. You take care.
17: And you have a good day. You too. Thank you, uh, Linda.
16: All right. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to uh, Brenda. You're on the air. Hi, Brenda.
18: Hello, Linda. How are you today?
16: Great. How are you?
18: I'm first-time caller, so I'm a bit nervous. Welcome (laughs) to the show. Thank you. It's funny you just had that caller talking about the Bank of Nova Scotia because um, I was a victim of identity theft back in April Scary stuff! I'm telling you, when your when your identity is stolen, it's not only like someone hacked to your bank, but your whole my whole identity was taken. Anyway, so, how did that happen? A, do you know? Um, I think I was using uh, I, I was using a public computer, and I think that's when I got hacked. Because the next day when I got home, there was a whole lot of spam in my thing, and then a couple of days later is when I had the problem. Somebody had my identity, and I they went down to the bank. Well, this is up in transit is where it was stolen from. And they took out a card in my name and started spending the card, so $15,000 on this card.
16: Oh, my goodness, and you started getting my the bills.
18: Name. Well, so as soon as I found out about it, which was the next day, because I get Scotia alerts that comes up when someone does, it, right? So I got an alert saying, it's a string. I didn't take $15,000 out of my account. So I called the Bank of Nova Scotia, certainly right away, went down with the manager, and she's the one told me that, yeah, you were a victim of identity theft. Not only was were you hacked, but it's deeper than this, Right. So they were, she was really helpful, I must say, and uh, at the Bank of Nova Scotia here on Wall Street. So I did everything I was supposed to. I, she called up to the fraud department, which is up in Toronto. And um, I went and did a police report, did, did the tra- Equifax, anti-fraud. Oh, it's a, it's a whole process, right? Which is another conversation in itself, but I won't go there. Anyway, make a long story short, they, they opened up an a, um, a account, a case, and started investigating it. And when we did talk at that day up along, did know that, that it was fraudulent because they had the money held up there too because they knew something was suspicious. So no money was given out, which was a good thing. Nothing was taken out of my account. Nothing was taken out of anybody's account. We cancelled the card, make sure, and I was flagged as identity theft. So I was waiting on the case, waiting on the case. Anyways, I called back. I ha- so I had to apply for a different card, and I got all my cards changed. So when I got my new card, I went into my bank account and noticed that there was still... That's $15,000 there with the card attached to my account. So I called them back and said, oh, yeah. you know." So I've been getting this since April, back and forth, back and forth, the credit department, the fraud department, the credit department. So Friday I go to my account, and what did the Bank of Nova Scotia do? They took the money out of my account, and they took $2,000 out of my mother's account. Because <laughs> I have my mother on my bank account too, so I can help her with her bills because she's, she's over 80, right? So I don't do anything with it. It's just there for me to help her. So they took not only out of my account, they took the money that was already reported as fraud out of my account, unbeknownst to me. Like, I guess my, one of my questions is like, can they do that?
16: I don't know. Um, have you tried to square that away with your bank and explain it all?
18: <laughs> ah. and you're going to ask me that. I've been since April going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Getting, you know what you like? You like this little mouse on the wheel going around, right? So I'm after calling like Colombia, India, Pakistan. Um, I got all all the countries I'm after people I'm after talking to with all these funny names. And then when you call back, you get somebody different, right? So you get somebody different. So then at the end of it, I was getting someone calling me from Collections So I explained it to this person in collections and they said, Oh yeah, there's a fraud case. So I said, Oh yeah, don't worry about it. Five to seven business days. That should be fixed. Here I am. Now they took the money out of my account and out of my mother's like, I am so upset about that, especially where they took it out of my mother's account. Like, oh, sure. I didn't think a bank could do that, especially not notifying you. Right? Here I am trying to get the money back that I didn't even know. The money never did exchange hands. The bank never lost the money, and I never got the money. And these three thieves never got the money. But now they're taking the money from me. So now the bank is actually fraudulently doing it to me, too. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Really, right? So it the, is it a mess.
16: Old, I, I know somebody who, who had their identity stolen. And, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you this, Brenda, but it was years before they could get
18: it all straightened out. You know what? Uh, look, I, I'm, I'm, like, as upsetting as it is, I'm kind of with myself that that might be years and stuff, and I'm nervous about doing anything. But for the bank to take the money out of my account, is like this is a different issue for me. For me, it's like, how dare they take money without even telling me and me calling the bank every day since April and telling them it's fraudulent and keeping updated and blah, blah, blah. And then they, they telling me, all these different 10 people I'm after calling, that, yeah, it's going to be resolved, they're going to resolve. and then turn around and take the money out of my account and out of my mother's. So here's my mother now with no money in her account, $200 in her account, because they took all the rest of it out. Like, where do you turn with that? Like, is it a legal thing? Is it a police thing? Is it because it, of a bank thing, I'm never going to get fixed because the bank are just doing their own thing, right?
16: Uh, there's got to be do. some recourse. I would imagine you should yeah. try with um, maybe Consumer Affairs, um, perhaps the Better Business Bureau, because they know how these things work as well. Um, uh, your bank, but like you say, you're getting a little bit of the runaround there. Uh, <laughs> well, this it's is seven months now, right? I'll yeah, you might need to go into your branch to, to figure that one out,
18: though. But you know something, Linda. I know, and you're saying that. But you know, I've been down to the branch. Last time. They can't do nothing down there. This is this is what they're telling me. They can't do nothing down there because it's fraud. We don't handle fraud. Well, we can't even do anything with fraud. It's well, the they mainland. were the
16: ones that took the money out of your account. So that
18: they, that's what you have to figure out with them. But they're saying that it's up a lot, up in fraud and debit and credits, That's not their, That's not them. Like it's up to the mainland. Oh. Oh my! Uh, See
16: what I'm saying? Like yeah, so you're in a yeah, you're in a nightmare loop there. Um, if anyone's I'm the listening, little mouse in the wheel going around, now. Round, yeah. round, If anyone's Thanks listening that might have some answers, uh, I would encourage them to give us a call and let us know.
18: Like Linda, I guess another thing is like for people to be aware of like this is all new to me. Okay, like I'm I'm so scared, I'm so worried, I'm just uh, like really upset because it's scary, right? And bad enough someone gets your identity, but when that happens. There's nothing out there for seniors or for anybody. Like, what do you do next? There is no next. You're on your own. Pretty much. It's like shocking, to really. Be something. Like, yeah. yeah, it is. Even for seniors, like, I don't even, I'm not a computer savvy person, so I don't saying go in and follow this. Like, I've done everything. And half the people, like, you go to the RCMP, they don't they do not do it. You go up for my passport, so they don't do it. So you put a, you know, you go to Aperfax and just file a report. You file a police report. The police didn't do anything. So you just, I don't know, I just find it frustrating that here is my money that anyone can just the bank can go in there and just take your money at any time and well too bad for you
16: brenda I, I appreciate your call as uh painful as it is um yeah we'll see if anyone's been through something similar and can give you some ideas on recourse i really appreciate your time
18: yeah that'd be nice and Linda, the gentleman that called in earlier mm-hmm. he's doing the right thing he's taking all his money out of the bank because that's when I mean, this is if this ever gets straightened up and when it does i'll be taking all my money out of the bank and they won't be like i'll just have it just enough to keep it open there
16: all right Brian, the brenda they thanks can take your money <laughs> thanks for listening Linda. righty bye-bye have a great day
18: uh Bye.
16: and we're going to get a little quick update on the accident on peacekeepers way hi zach hi zach
13: hello hey what's on the go on peacekeepers we just passed out through there not uh, not too long ago we were one of the uh one of the bunch that turned around It looks to me uh, like there's a wire down from about halfway down the pole. I'm not sure if it would actually be a live wire, but it's probably safe just not to uh, come in around that area anyway until Newfoundland Power deals with it. I've tried calling into Newfoundland Power, but uh, apparently all their emergency lines are currently busy. So I'm guessing that there's a few people that are calling in about this as well.
16: All right. uh, Good to know. So the wire's down where exactly?
13: It's just past the Fox Trap access roads uh, as you're coming towards town, so in between Fox Trap and Long Pond.
16: Just past the Fox Trap access. All righty, and that seems to be what's tying traffic up in that area.
4: Yeah, it was uh, it was down right across the roads, uh, like
13: laid out completely across the road uh, as we passed by there probably 10, 15 minutes ago.:
16: All right, Zach, we really appreciate that. Thanks so much. No problem. All righty. Bye bye.
8: All right. Have a good one now. You too. Bye bye.
16: Uh, And we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we're back. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly, who had to dart out a little early for an appointment, but uh, we're getting, (laughs) Dave is getting inundated with calls from a variety of people with all kinds of reasons why a bank might hold that $100 from your $500 check. Um, And, each bank has its own reasons, and each bank has its own types of accounts, and it depends on the type of account you have. In some cases, it's a little bit of a buffer in case you might go into a overdraft or whatever the case may be if you don't have an overdraft. Um, uh, so we're being given a variety of reasons why that happens um, and what's specific to your particular circumstance if you are being withheld, a uh, $100 is being withheld, We can't say for certain, uh, because there's a variety of reasons why. Uh, We're going to go now to the Executive Director of the School Lunch Program, John Finn. Hello, John.
19: Yes, hello, Linda. Thank you for taking my call.
16: Well, thanks for coming on the show. What's on your mind?
19: Uh, Well, Linda, I just want to call and echo a sentiment that was mentioned earlier from uh, Lisa uh, Brown, who had called in to reference Giving Tuesday. Um, And so some of your listeners might be familiar with our program. The School Lunch Association is a registered charity. Um, And Giving Tuesday, of course, follows uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And it's just a time when, you know, charities such as ours kind of encourage folks when they're thinking about donating this year um, to maybe consider us. Um, This past year in particular has been extremely demanding on our program. Uh, So currently we operate in 41 schools, um, providing a lunch to children each day. Um, we're serving about 6,500 meals a day, and some days that can spike up to as many as 8,000. Um, other days, it's 5,000. Um, the demand for our program now has uh, never been greater, um, with respect to uh, increase in the uptake and participation from students, um, and as well as the financial constraints from the cost of food and inflation, and how that's impacting families. How much has it increased exactly? Um, well, uh, last year with some supply chain issues, we figured we had about a 20 to 25% increase in the cost of food. Um, we procure some of the vicinity of $50,000 worth of food each week. Um, this year, that number has dropped a little bit, but we're still around 15% increase in the cost of food and about 18 to 19% increase in the cost of supplies. Um, so that presents a challenge from, from just the, the simple operation. Um, on the other side of the uh, equation, um, we operate a pay-what-you-can model. So <clears throat> each child each day would receive the same hot, nutritious lunch, um, and neither child would be aware of what the other's family actually did pay um, for that meal. And so on that side of the equation, that's where the demand has um, really been putting us in a bit of a crunch this year. Well, just to give you an idea, last October, um, we served approximately – 800 meals a day for free Uh, this past October that number is up around 1900 meals a day for free out of the ground again an average of about 6,500 so you know you're looking at uh, basically one in four um, families who are unable to to pay for a lunch for their child each day
16: that's extraordinary that's doubled um, more than doubled. Um, so um, we've only got about two minutes left. So what are you looking for now in terms of this being Giving Tuesday?
19: Well, again, just to get the message out. I mean, like other charities are in the same boat. You, We hear it on the ads as your listeners. Um, you know, The Gathering Place, Kid Eat Smart, and, and all these other great charities. Um, so for us, we're very fortunate to have some tremendous sponsors. The folks at Piper's right now are doing a nice campaign for us. Uh, um, Hanlon Realty every year is good to us. Ben Sergi Spa. Law insurance, um, you know, th- there's all kinds of good corporate uh, donors out there and, uh, and families and individuals as well. So I just want to encourage folks today, if you're thinking about donating, to visit uh, schoollunch.ca and perhaps think about giving a child a lunch on Giving Tuesday.
16: And um, uh, my son benefited from the school lunch program. I have to say Uh, he's um, into a different school now so he doesn't have that at his new school. But uh, what an extraordinary program. The meals are gorgeous, beautiful. Uh, My husband and I often looked at the meal selections and said, oh, I don't eat as good as this. Um, it's, uh, It's a really extraordinary program. You do really good work.
19: No, thank you. And it's all thanks to a great, tremendous staff as well that that helped pull that off each and every single day. So uh, thanks for letting me have an opportunity to get the message out. And uh, thank you to your listeners who might consider us today.
16: John Finn, really appreciate your time. You've been the last caller now on uh, VOCM Open Line. Uh, Thanks so much and good luck.
19: You're most welcome. Thank you.
16: And uh, we'll be back tomorrow on Open Line. Uh, On Target is coming up at 1 o'clock. And uh, you're going to hear from uh, Jolene Grimes now with uh, News at Noon. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone.